you are listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans as they examine America's most infamous true crime cases as they were established in our courts and the basis for the decisions of the appeals courts not the court of public opinion. Here's Lisa and Kyle. Welcome to season two of Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. We're your hosts, Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans, and this is episode 11, Notable Supreme Court Cases, part two. Today, we'll talk about cases decided between 1985 and 1994, including Ake versus Oklahoma, U.S. versus Bagley, Coleman versus Thompson, Ford versus Wainwright, Murray versus Carrier, Sawyer versus Whitley, Herrera versus Collins, and Tyson versus Arizona. We'll look briefly at the background of each case, the issues raised by the petitioners, and the decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court. And good afternoon, Kyle. Welcome back. Good afternoon, Lisa. How are you? Sorry I missed you last time. Yeah, that was um uh that was kind of poor planning on my part. No, no worries. Life is hectic. (laughs) Always something going on, but great to be back. Yeah, I uh and to just to kind of fill listeners in, I wanted to record last Sunday, but Kyle was visiting his girl child in Missouri. So that was not feasible. And so we put it off until this weekend. So, um, and nothing wrong with that. No judgment, (laughs) just (laughs) the fact. Uh We had a very good, it was a good fun trip. It's hard. Uh, She gets older. uh, She gets further and further out of the nest, but Mm -hmm. it was a really good fun trip. Good. I'm, I'm very glad. I'm very happy that you enjoyed yourself and, and I saw some of it on Facebook. And so, um, but uh, yeah, I should have, you know, made sure that you were available that week and scheduled it um, ahead of time no, instead no of worries. like a couple of days before saying, you ready? <laughs> All right. So Absolutely. we're back Let's to get the, to it. So we're back to the U.S. Supreme Court cases, and we're going to start with cases uh, decided since 1985. We ended last uh, episode with 1984. And, of course, the first case we're going to look at is Ake versus Oklahoma. It could be Akey. It's pronounced different ways. Uh, 470 U.S. 68, 1985. The underlying crimes were committed on October 15, 1979. Uh, They involve two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of shooting with intent to kill and an uncharged attempted rape. The jurisdiction venue was Canadian County, Oklahoma. The victims were Reverend Richard Douglas, his wife Marilyn, his son Brooks, 16, and his daughter Leslie, 12. Um, The uh, defendants the defendant was Glenn Burton Ake, and he's also known as Johnny Vandenover. And his accomplice in this case was Stephen Keith Hatch, 
who was also known as Stephen Lysenby. Uh, the additional crimes committed by these two involved a crime, a crime spree through Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, and the Western United States. Uh, they were arrested in Colorado. Um, they were returned to Oklahoma. Uh, they were charged, indicted, and uh, proceeding to trial when in sometime in the interim, uh, Aki alleged he was incompetent, or his attorneys alleged he was incompetent. So there was a break in the trial per, uh, process until May 27, 1980, when he was found competent to proceed and proceedings were reinstated. Aki was ultimately convicted and sentenced to death. And the Court of Criminal Appeals is the state court that was reviewing the decision uh, that was whose decision was being reviewed at the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, the case summary petitioner who was indigent sought review by certiorari of a judgment of the Court of Criminal Appeals of Oklahoma, which affirmed his conviction for murder after finding that he was not entitled to the assistance of a psychiatrist in preparing his insanity defense. Petitioner was convicted of murder. He appealed his conviction, claiming the state should have provided him with access to a psychiatrist in order to prepare his defense of insanity. The Court of Appeals affirmed the conviction. On review, the court determined that when a state brought its judicial power to bear on an indigent defendant in a criminal proceeding, it was required to take steps to assure that the defendant had a fair opportunity to present a defense. The court found that the state had ample notice that petitioner intended to present a defense of insanity to the murder charges against him. Due process required that the state provide petitioner with access to a psychiatrist, both to assist in the preparation of his insanity defense to the charges and in any sentencing proceedings. Petitioner's murder conviction was therefore reversed and remanded for a new trial. So the court reversed the judgment and remanded for a new trial. Uh, and that decision was on February 26, 1985. The court held that it had jurisdiction to review the case, that the Court of Criminal Appeals holding the federal constitutional claim to a court-appointed psychiatrist was waived dependent on the court's federal law ruling and consequently does not present an independent state ground for its decision. When a defendant has made a preliminary showing that is in that his sanity at the time of the offense is likely to be a significant factor at trial, the Constitution requires that a state provide access to a psychiatrist's assistance on this issue if the defendant cannot otherwise afford one. And then there were, were multiple subholdings that I'm not going to really go through. Um, but basically, uh, they held that the petitioner was entitled to access to a psychiatrist's assistance at his trial, it being clear that his mental state at the time of the offense was a substantial factor in his defense, and that the trial court was on notice of that fact when the request for a court-appointed psychiatrist was made. In addition, petitioner's future dangerousness was a significant factor at the sentencing phase, so as to entitle him to a psychiatrist's assistance on this issue and the denial of that assistance deprived him of due process. Um, and this is a case that you see uh, moving forward on expert assistance being provided to indigent defenses defendants. And I think we 
we kind of early on heard this uh, from counsel for Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly in the West of three case. Yeah, no, that's exactly the one that I was thinking about, too. That was the first thing that popped in my head was the Jesse Miss Kelly. Yeah, that, you know, they should have been provided with a criminal profiler and uh, all these experts, uh, medical examiner and things like that. Although ultimately those those claims were denied because they weren't able to show that their trial counsel's failure to employ such experts was not reasonable as far as trial strategy goes. Um, and they never made a request for any of these types of experts. Um, Aki was convicted at his retrial and sentenced to life in prison, two terms, and two terms of 200 years in prison. Um, Brooks and Leslie um, Douglas both survived their encounter with Mr. Aki and his co-defendant, uh, and they um, they went on after their parents were murdered by their uh, by Aki and his co-defendant. And this is a case I think that we might look at, although there's not a lot of information available online because the crime occurred in 1979. Uh, any questions? Any thoughts? No, I mean, just what I mentioned earlier. Yeah, it's the it's interesting. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud, but it is it's tough to figure out how you kind of provide for a robust defense at some point. But yet at sometimes it can get a little bit overboard. Yes. But yeah, I was thinking the same thing around the um, the the Miss Kelly situation in particular. Yeah. Although I do I, I do agree with this. I, I do agree with the expansion of that expert assistance. Wainwright, uh, Gideon versus Wainwright gave legal assistance. Yes. And Aki expanded expert assistance. And I, I do agree with it. And, you know, Aki's mental state, whether it was legitimate or not, was an issue prior to trial. So it's not as though all of a sudden at trial he tried to claim insanity. Yeah. All right. But, yeah. Well, and it's always it feels like it's always the balance between we I don't think any of us want a justice system that is just based on how much money you have. It shouldn't be, you no. know, justice is based on how much you can purchase. Correct. I totally agree. And interestingly enough, though, um, I have learned through my many years of research that there are actually organizations and experts who provide pro bono. Right. Well, and that's what, yeah, that's what I was going to say too, is if you listen to a lot, you know, I mean, and that's part of, I think, you know, the bar's ethical requirements and, you know, you I was listening to um, Alan Dershowitz's podcast and he just talked about, you know, he's maybe the most famous lawyer in the United States these days. And he talked about all the pro bono work he does. So I know a lot of these guys, you know, mm -hmm. you pay these guys $500 an hour if, if, if you can, but then knowing, you know, hopefully most of them are going to do quite a bit of uh, pro bono work on the side as well. You know, whether you're an expert or you're an actual attorney. All right. So our next case, Caldwell versus Mississippi, 472 U.S. 320, 1985. Uh, this was a capital murder case. The, the murder was committed on October 29th, 1980. 
It was during the course of a robbery. Uh, the jurisdiction was in Sardis, Panola County, Mississippi. The victim was Elizabeth Faulkner, the defendant, Bobby Caldwell. Um, Caldwell was arrested in Batesville, which is also in Panola County, Mississippi. Um, Caldwell did get a change of venue uh, from Panola to DeSoto County, Mississippi, which is in the north, uh, south of Memphis. Uh, he was tried in DeSoto County and convicted and sentenced to death. And I don't have those dates because, again, we have a crime that occurred pre-internet. So there really isn't a lot of information available. And even the opinions that I read didn't have a lot of, of dates and times and time frames. Um, the state court, again, this is a, a post direct appeal writ that was being to review a decision of the Supreme Court of Mississippi. Petitioner accused sought review of the affirmation of his capital sentence from the Supreme Court of Mississippi. The accused was convicted of capital murder in his sentencing proceedings. The prosecutor sought to minimize the jury's sense of importance in its role of determining the death sentence by assuring the jury that their decision was automatically reviewed by an appellate court. On certiorari, the accused contended that the prosecutor's argument rendered the capital sentencing proceeding inconsistent with the Eighth Amendment's heightened need for reliability. The state argued that the accused death sentence should be upheld despite the prosecutor's comments. The court held that the accused capital sentence was invalid when the sentencing jury was led to believe that responsibility for determining the appropriate appropriateness of a death sentence rested not with the jury, but with the appellate court that later reviewed the case. The court found that the trial judge not only failed to cure the prosecutor's remarks, but also, in fact, openly agreed with them. The court concluded that the prosecutor's argument affected the fundamental fairness of the sentencing proceeding and that the sentencing decision did not meet the heightened standard of reliability under the Eighth Amendment. The court vacated the accused capital sentence as invalid because the sentence failed to meet the heightened standard of reliability required by the Eighth Amendment. So his uh, decision was rendered on June 11, 1985, reversing his capital sentence, vacating it, and remanding for new sentencing. Lisa, sorry, I'm having a senior moment. Okay. The Eighth Amendment is... The Eighth Amendment is cruel and unusual oh, okay. punishment. Okay, that's what I was going to be my guess. Okay, that's what I was going to guess. I wanted to ask you. And then the Fourteenth Amendment is applying the Bill of Rights, the, the amendments in the Bill of Rights to the states as well as the federal system. So usually 8th and 14th go hand in hand when you're dealing with a state case. Um, but in this case, they just, you know, used 8th Amendment and didn't, didn't raise 14th. Okay, the court held where an examination of the decision below as to the issue of the prosecutor's comments does not indicate that it rested on adequate and independent state grounds, namely petitioner's failure to comply with the Mississippi procedural rule as to raising the issue on appeal, this court does not lack jurisdiction to decide the issue. And what that basically means is, um, even though he didn't raise this issue in his direct appeal to the Supreme Court of Mississippi, it was that was not a fatal flaw to the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court reviewing it because it is a constitutional violation. 
um, that's being raised or it's being presented as a constitutional violation. Um, it is constitutionally impermiss impermissible to rest a death sentence on a determination made by a sentencer who has been led to believe, as the jury was in this case, that the responsibility for determining the appropriateness of the defendant's death rests elsewhere. Belief in the truth of the assumption that sentences treat their power to determine the appropriateness of death as an awesome responsibility has allowed this court to view sentencer discretion as consistent with and indispensable to the 18th Amendment's need for reliability in the determination that death is appropriate punishment in a specific case, and that's citing Woodson versus North Carolina. There are several reasons to fear substantial unreliability as well as bias in favor, favor of death sentences when there are state-induced suggestions that the sentencing jury may shift its sense of responsibility to an appellate court. Um, the delegation of sentencing responsibility that the prosecutor here encouraged would not simply postpone petitioner's right to a fair determination of the appropriateness of his death, Rather, it would deprive him of that right for an appellate court, unlike the sentencing jury, is ill-suited to evaluate the appropriateness of death in the first instance. Even when a sentencing jury is unconvinced that death is the appropriate punishment, it might nevertheless wish to send a message of extreme disapproval for the defendant's acts. This de desire might make the jury very receptive to the prosecutor's assurance that it can err because the error can be corrected on appeal. A defendant might then be executed, although no sentencer had ever determined that death was the appropriate sentence. If a jury understands that only a death sentence and not a life sentence will be reviewed, it will also understand that any decision to delegate responsibility for sentencing can only be effectuated by returning a death sentence. This presents the specter of the imposition of death based on an irrelevant factor and would also create the danger of a defendant's being executed without any determination that death was the appropriate punishment. The uncorrected suggestion that a jury's responsibility for any ultimate determination of death will rest with, other pres with others presents the danger that the jury will choose to minimize the importance of its role, especially where, as here, the jury is told that the alternative decision maker is the state's highest court. As to the state's contention, the prosecutor's argument was an invited response to defense counsel's argument and that this thus was not unreasonable, neither the state nor the court below explains how the prosecutor's argument was less likely to have distorted the jury's deliberations because of anything defense counsel said. Donnelly versus De Cristoforo does not preclude a finding of constitutional error based on the sort of impropriety that the prosecutor's argument contains. Although that case warned against holding every improper and unfair argument of a state prosecutor be a federal constitutional violation, it did not insulate all prosecutorial comments from federal constitutional objections. Okay, the opinion, and I think I skipped the opinion authors in um, Aki. I don't know how I did it, but I did it. Uh, the opinion was authored, the majority opinion was authored by Justice Marshall for parts 1, 2, 3, 4B, 4C, and 5, and he was joined by Justices Brennan, Blackman, Stevens, and O'Connor. Uh, Justice Marshall also authored part 4A, joined by Genis Justices Brennan, Blackman, and Stevens. Justice O'Connor occurred concurred in part 
end in the judgment and express the view that the prosecutor's remarks were impermissible because they were inaccurate and misleading in a manner that diminished the jury's sense of responsibility, but the California versus Ramos does not prohibit the giving of accurate and non-misleading information regarding the jury's role in the sentencing scheme as irrelevant to the sentencing decision. And the uh, Justice Rehnquist authored a dissent joined by Justice, Chief Justice Berger and Justice White expressing the view that the prosecutor's argument taken as a whole had not improperly diminished the jury's sense of responsibility. Uh, and Justice Powell took no part in consideration or decision in this case. And that may be because he came from the Fifth Circuit. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't say why he took no part, but that may be a reason he either came from uh, prosecutor in Mississippi, Mississippi Supreme Court, or federal district court, or Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, and that made him ineligible to participate in the yeah, in some the kind of conflict decisions. Um, so then, uh, the U. the Mississippi Supreme Court, um, Caldwell's case went back to the trial court, the state court. Um, he brought a motion to vacate or set aside the judgment of the circuit court of Soda County, Mississippi, convicting him of capital murder and sentencing him to death, claiming that he was denied effective assistance of counsel. Um, the Supreme Court of Mississippi held that Wait, oh, the, the summary is appellant was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death. Court affirmed the sentence and conviction on appeal, but the United States Supreme Court vacated the sentence of death. Appellant then moved to have the judgment of conviction of capital murder vacated or set aside. The court overruled the motion because appellant's assertion that his trial counsel did not vigorously pursue his defense, but instead sought merely to ameliorate the force of the prosecution's case could not be maintained. Given the overwhelming evidence presented against appellant at trial, the court could not say that defense counsel did not employ sound trial strategy. Certainly, it could be argued that it would have benefited appellant little for his attorney to protest loudly and ve vehemently appellant's innocence when the evidence pointed so convincing convincingly toward his guilt. Defense counsel was well aware that this was a death penalty case and their arguments to the jury may well have presented the face of reasonableness in order to try to save appellant's life. This was sound trial strategy. So the court overruled appellant's motion. Then on um, July 30th, 1986, the case was back before the uh, Mississippi Supreme Court. Defendant appealed a decision of the Circuit Court of DeSoto County, Mississippi, convicting of capital murder. Following a reversal of the sentence imposed after the conviction, the action was remanded for a new sentencing hearing. The Circuit Court denied defendant's venue motion and defendant requested a remedial writ directing the transfer of his retrial to the county in which the crime occurred. So essentially, now he wants to go back to Panola County, which is in kind of in central, north central Mississippi. It's around University of Mississippi for football fans. <laughs> um, Oxford. Ole Miss at Oxford. Ole yeah. Miss and Oxford. Yeah. Um, 
so defendant was indicted for capital murder in Panola County, was successful in having his venue changed to DeSoto County. Defendant's conviction was affirmed by the court, but because of prosecutorial misconduct in the closing argument of the sentencing phase, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the death sentence and remanded the action for further proceedings. Defendant moved to have his retrial in the county where the crime occurred, but the circuit court denied the motion because it held that the penalty phase should be conducted in the same place where the guilt-innocence phase was conducted. The court, in its grant of defendant's motion, held that the right to have a trial in the county where the crime occurred was an, on equal footing with the right to counsel and the privilege against self-incrimination. The court held that if either of these rights were waived at an initial trial that was later reversed on retrial, the slate of constitutional rights was wiped clean, thus allowing inv invocation of the rights. However, the court noted that the rash this rationale did not apply to a sentencing phase conducted immediately after a conviction and before appellate review. So essentially, the court granted defendant's motion for a remedial writ directing the circuit court to transfer the penalty phase of defendant's trial to the county in which the crime occurred. On uh, February 23, 1987, um, a, the Caldwell was back before the U.S. Supreme Court and he was allowed to proceed in form pauperous and his certiorari was granted. Uh, his judgment of the Mississippi Supreme Court was vacated and the case was remanded for further consideration in light of Griffith versus Kentucky and Allen versus Hardy. Um, so then back to the Mississippi Supreme Court, September 30th, 1987, the court on remand from US, United States Supreme Court reviewed the procedural status of petitioner inmates case as of the time that Batson versus Kentucky was decided and determine if the rationale of that case had to be applied retroactively to petitioner's case. So he was raising a jury, uh, a jury selection issue. Um, and I didn't go into the weeds with these. I basically just looked at any cases decided afterwards and got the summaries. Um, Petitioner was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to death on direct appeal. The court affirmed the case was vacated and remanded by the United Supreme Court. Following remand, uh, petitioner filed a motion for post-conviction relief with the court, which was denied and defendant petitioned the Supreme Court for certiorari. While petitioner's motion for uh, post-conviction relief was pending, he was retrialed on the original case and the Supreme Court decided Batson versus Kentucky. The Supreme Court remanded petitioner's case for reconsideration of his motion for post-conviction relief in light of its decision in Batson. On remand, the court reinstated its prior opinion and order, holding that petitioner was not entitled to the rights and procedures of Batson's because his case had achieved finality before the decision in Batson had been rendered. And so the, record, the court reinstated its prior opinion and order. And I didn't I didn't look for Caldwell, so I don't really know what happened. Although I'm guessing he was resentenced to life uh, because he didn't go back to the U.S. Supreme Court on a death sentence. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's the last that's the last subsequent history that I found. Um, I don't necessarily agree with this. 
because I don't agree with defense attorneys or media accusing a jury of killing a defendant when they sentence him to death. I agree with you. Um, because the I, jury has to work within the confines of the law. Correct. And they are following the law and they are following the evidence and they are weighing the factors and right. they are sentencing the, but they're, if their sentence were the end and the defendant were immediately taken out behind the courthouse and shot, then yes, that would be true. But there is appellate review, there's post-conviction review, and there are a plethora of avenues available to a defendant uh, to challenge not only the underlying conviction, but the death sentence. Right. Well, and I mean, I think there's a piece too where you have to, I mean, which we can't, we don't seem like we do very well as a society today where we don't understand the ability to, you know, subjugate our personal opinions to, you know, the law. So, I mean, I'll use myself as an example. I personally oppose the death penalty, but if I were selected for a jury on a capital case, I would say, well, if I believe this is the evidence that's appropriate punishment, I would vote for it because mm -hmm. my opinions are, subs you know, are subservient to, you know, the laws of the land. It's not about your own personal opinion. It's, you know, it's the law. Otherwise, I'd say, hey, I please don't select me for jury duty because no matter what happens, I don't believe in this and I could never do it. And fine, disqualify yourself. But if you agree to get on the jury, you need to follow the law and not your personal opinions. Right. I, I agree. Um, and again, I mean, I, I don't find that what the, uh, what the prosecutor said is not, is not inaccurate. The death sentence is going to be reviewed. So, um, the jury is not the end of the, um, is not the end of the question. Right. So, but again, um, that was the U.S. Supreme Court's decision, and um, that's where we that's where we stand <laughs> on that one. So, I may look at that case. Um, we may look at that case on the show and see if I'm able to come up with any more information about what happened to Mr. Caldwell. Um. On a future episode. All right. Next case is U.S. versus Bagley, 473 U.S. 667, uh, and it was also decided in 1985. This is a companion. When you see Brady, you usually see Bagley as well. Mm -hmm. um, and the crime, the underlying crime is violation of federal firearm uh, law and narcotic statutes. Uh, the defendant was Hughes A. Bagley Jr., and he had four counts of federal firearm violations and 11 counts of narcotics uh, violations. He was indicted in October of 1977 in the Western District of Washington. This was a federal case. He was subsequently convicted on December 23, 1977, of the narcotic violations. Uh, that was 11 counts, and his case was 
appealed to the uh, direct appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And it came then before the U.S. Supreme Court uh, on a writ of certiorari after his direct appeal in the federal system. The government sought review of an order of the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which held that the government violated defendants' constitutional right to effective cross-examination on a finding that the government withheld information from discovery that trial witnesses were paid for testimony. Defendant was indicted for violating federal narcotics and firearm statutes. Defendant filed a discovery motion regarding whether witnesses were paid to give testimony. The prosecutor failed to disclose that witnesses would be paid after testimony. Defendant was found guilty. Subsequently, defendant discovered that the witnesses had been paid and he sought to vacate his sentences on the grounds that failure to disclose violated his right to due process and to impeach witnesses. The trial court denied defendant's motion to vacate, holding that impeachment evidence would not have affected the outcome of the trial. The appellate court reversed, holding that the denial of evidence was a violation of due process and defendant's right to confrontation. The court reversed and remanded for a determination of whether the failure to disclose the evidence would have affected the trial outcome, thus comprising a constitutional error where such evidence was material. The court reversed the order and remanded for a determination of whether prosecutors withholding of evidence was material in that it would have affected the outcome. Uh, the So that was decided on July 2nd, 1985. So we have a lot of cases from 1985, by the way. <laughs> They were very busy that that term. Yeah, uh, parts but... one and two, the court held that the Court of Appeals erred in holding the prosecutor's failure to disclose evidence that could have been used effectively to impeach important government witnesses requires automatic reversal. Such non-disclosure constitutes constitutional error and requires reversal of the conviction only if the evidence is material in the sense that its suppression might have affected the outcome of the trial. The non-disclosed, this is part three, the non-disclosed evidence at issue is material only if there's a reasonable probability that had the evidence been disclosed to the defense, the result of the proceeding would have been different. A reasonable probability is a probability sufficient to undermine confidence in the outcome. This standard of materiality is sufficiently flexible to cover cases of prosecutorial failure to disclose evidence favorable to the defense regardless of whether the defense makes no request, a general request, or a specific request. Although the prosecutor's failure to respond fully to a specific request may impair the adversary process by having the effect of representing to the defense that certain evidence does not exist, this possibility of impairment does not necessitate a different standard of materiality. Under the standards stated above, the reviewing court may consider directly any adverse effect that the prosecutor's failure to respond might have had on the preparation or presentation of the defendant's case. There is no reason to elaborate on the relevance of the specificity of the defense's request for disclosure, either generally or respected with this case, concluding that the reversal was mandated simply because the Court of Appeals failed to apply the reasonable probability standard of materiality to the non-disclosed evidence in question. Um, and basically, that is where Brady's um, materiality and impact on the outcome of prejudice requirements come from is Bagley. Gotcha. That so, makes sense. Um, 
and also I think um, it, it's it's also again I think we've touched on this is something known to the defendant cannot be a Brady violation. For example, a defendant can't claim his prior criminal history was withheld from his attorneys as a Brady violation because he could tell his attorney. Yeah, exactly. Right. What his prior criminal history was. For um, sure. So, but, but will it, it, I, I think, I don't think it was a Supreme court, a case. I think it was a, a, um, a court of appeals case in in habeas uh, dealing with mitigation evidence. So uh, I don't know whether we'll touch on it or not. No promises. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the opinion was authored parts one and two by Justice Blackman. It was a per, per curiam, which means by the court. Uh, he was joined by Chief Justice Berger, Justices White, Rehnquist, and O'Connor. And then part three, he was joined only by Justice O'Connor. Uh, Justice White authored a concurrence joined by Chief Justice Berger and Justice Rehnquist, expressing the view that the defendant was entitled to a reversal of his conviction only if he could show that the evidence in question was material according to the standards stated above, but seeing no need to discuss the relevance of the to the application of that standard of the specificity of the defendant's discovery request as had been done in the opinion by Justice Blackman. Justice Marshall dissented, and he was joined by Justice Brennan, expressing the view that the prosecution's failure to disclose evidence that might impeach his only witness could not be deemed harmless error, and that prosecutors should be required to disclose all evidence that reasonably appears favorable to the defense, rather than to guess at its likely effect on the outcome of the trial. Justice Stevens authored a dissent expressing the view that the court has improperly rewritten the Brady rule, which simply requires that the evidence in question be material to guilt or punishment. And again, Justice Powell took no part in consideration or decision in this case, which may mean that he was um, sitting out that term. Or sitting out on those cases for other reasons because he couldn't have been on the ninth circuit court of appeals and the fifth circuit court of appeals. True. Uh, on remand, the case uh, uh, was back before the U S ninth circuit court of appeals Bagley versus Lumpkin in an action initiated by appellant inmate under 28 USCS 2255. The Supreme court remanded the matter for further consideration of whether the government violated appellant's due process rights by failing to disclose potentially exculpatory information prior to his trial. Appellant inmate was convicted of drug offenses. The only testimony relevant to the charges came from two witnesses who prior to trial furnished the government with affidavits recounting their interactions with appellant and stating that they gave the statements without threat or reward. The affidavits were produced to appellant prior to trial and in light thereof, counsel did not vigorously question the witnesses as to whether they were offered any inducements for their cooperation. Appellant subsequently will learn that the witnesses had entered into written contracts with an ATF agent to supply information in exchange for compensation. Appellant filed a motion under 22 USCS 2255 alleging that the government violated his due process rights by failing to disclose the contacts. 
contracts. The district court denied the motion. The court reversed, but its decision was reversed by the Supreme Court. On remand, the Ninth Circuit reversed again, holding that the government's failure to disclose the contracts deprived appellant of a fair trial because the information was relevant for impeachment purposes and the non-disclosure adversely affected appellant's ability to prepare his defense. So, and that was pretty much the end. Um, so I'm guessing that um, his uh, conviction was vacated by the district court on remand and the government elected not to uh and I didn't note the date of Bagley versus Lumpkin, uh, 1986. So it was about a year after the remand. So, um, but yeah, that's an expansion on Brady and that's where the materiality and uh, prejudice requirements come that are, that are paired with Brady violation claims. Got it. Now that's really helpful. Yeah. All right, so the next case is Heath versus Alabama, 474 U.S. 82, also decided in 1985. Uh, the underlying crime was a murder during a kidnapping, so it was a first-degree murder uh, committed on August 31st, 1981. Uh, the crimes occurred, this was a murder-for-hire case. The victim was kidnapped in Phoenix, Russell County, Alabama, we're familiar and, with the murder for hire cases, aren't we? <laughs> yes, we are. And taken to Troop County, Georgia, where her body was found and where she was likely murdered. The victim was Rebecca Heath, who was 21 at the time. She was also pregnant, nine months. Um, so her unborn son uh, also died as a result of this crime. The defendant was Larry Jean Heath, Rebecca's husband. Uh, his accomplices were Denise Lambert, his girlfriend, and Charles Edward Owen and Gregory Hughes Lumpkin, who undertook the murder contract. Uh, Heath was arrested on September 4th, 1981 in Troop County, Georgia. Uh, he was He entered a guilty plea to malice murder in Georgia on February 10th, 1982, to avoid the death penalty. Uh, and then on May 8th, 1982, he was indicted in Alabama for murder during kidnapping first degree. He was tried in Alabama on January 12th, 1983, and convicted on January 12th, 1983. He was sentenced to death on February 10th, 1983, and appealed that to the Supreme Court of Alabama, which affirmed. He then proceeded to the U.S. Supreme Court, and this is challenging uh, on double jeopardy grounds. Because he was, he pled guilty to a crime in Georgia that arose from the same criminal transaction. Hmm. Um, so petitioner challenged the judgment of the Supreme Court of Alabama which affirmed petitioner's conviction for kidnapping and murder. Petitioner hired two men to kill his wife. They kidnapped petitioner's wife from her home in Alabama and drove a short distance to Georgia where they killed her. Petitioner was charged with murder in Georgia and pled guilty. 
he was sentenced to life imprisonment. Alabama charged petitioner with murder during kidnapping, and he was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death, despite his protests of double jeopardy. After exhausting his state appeals, petitioner filed a petition for writ of certiorari raising double jeopardy claims, but no due process objections were asserted. The court granted certiorari limited to the question of whether petitioner's Alabama conviction was barred by the double jeopardy clause of the U.S. Constitutional Amendment 5. The court held that a single act constituted an offense against each sovereign whose laws are violated by that act, and accordingly, each state was permitted to prosecute. The judgment of the appellate court, which affirmed the conviction, was affirmed. So essentially, this is the dual sovereignty doctrine. It also applies, for example, if anyone remembers Oklahoma bombing, I believe Terry Nichols pled guilty in federal court to avoid death sentence. And there was talk at the time of the state of Oklahoma charging him under state law, trying him and convicting him and sentencing him to death. I don't think that ever happened, but it could have. Right. Because this isn't, I mean, I know we just talked about the, we just talked about the case that applies the Bill of Rights to state 14th. laws. Yeah. Yeah. The 14th Amendment. But I mean, they are, I mean, you are technically being tried for two different things, two different laws. Well, you're, you're, yeah. Technically, you're being tried. Double jeopardy is basically you can't be tried, acquitted, and then tried again. Right. Um, but I mean, people have tried to apply it when their case is reversed and they go back for a new trial. They've tried to apply it to that, saying, Well, I've already been convicted and it's been reversed, so you can't try me again. But that's not really how double jeopardy works. So, yeah, you can be tried by two sovereigns. Each state is a sovereign entity. Right. The federal government is a sovereign entity. So you can, the court affirmed the judgment of the appellate court, which applied the dual sovereignty doctrine and held that prosecutions under the, under the laws of separate sovereigns did not, for double jeopardy purposes, improperly subject an accused twice to prosecutions for the same offense. Um, now, we saw in the o Ohio case, but that was everything occurred within the state of Ohio. If he'd driven across state lines, I don't think I don't know that he was uh, near the border of Kentucky or Pennsylvania. But if he'd dri driven across state lines into Kentucky, or if he'd driven across to Pennsylvania, he might have been tried, triable, for stolen vehicle crimes within the states of of Kentucky or Pennsylvania. So the decision was rendered on December third, nineteen eighty five. And the judgment of the Supreme Court of Alabama was affirmed. Uh, the court held that this court will not decide whether the Alabama trial court had jurisdiction where petitioner did not claim lack of jurisdiction in his petition to the Alabama Supreme Court, but raised the claim for the first time in his petition to this court. Uh, under the dual subject for any doctrine, successive prosecutions by two states for the same conduct are not barred by the double jeopardy clause of the Fifth Amendment, and hence Alabama was not barred for tr from trying petitioner. 
and I'm not going to go through the sub, uh, the sub parts that essentially say the same things <laughs> that reiterate the holding. Um, so the majority opinion was authored by Justice O'Connor. She was joined by Chief Justice Berger, Justices White, Blackman, Powell, Rehnquist, and Stevens. Justice Brennan, joined by Justice Marshall, uh, filed a dissent expressing the view that the different purposes or interests served by specific statutes cannot justify an exception to established double jeopardy law. Marshall also authored a dissent joined by Justice Brennan, expressing the view that the dual sovereignty doctrine cannot justify successive prosecutions by different states for the same act, and that even where the doctrine to support successive state prosecutions as a general matter, it simply could not legitimate the collusion between Georgia and Alabama in this case to ensure that the defendant would be executed for his crime. And he was executed on March 21st, 1992 by the state of Alabama. So, um, and also the 14th Amendment is due process, essentially. Right. So, uh, but this might be an interesting case, case for us to look at as well. And to look at what happened with uh, Lambert. Apparently, Heath and his wife were going through stuff and he was cheating on her with a girlfriend to whom he had become engaged. And he didn't want a divorce, apparently, so he decided to be a, make himself a widower. And that's how Rebecca and her unborn son were became victims of a selfish man. That's a classy guy right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Our next case, Batson versus Kentucky, um, which we kind of referenced a little bit earlier uh, in the Caldwell case, because while Caldwell was making its way through the system, Batson was decided. Uh, this was Batson versus Kentucky, 476 U.S. 79, 1986. So this is the following term. The underlying crime was second-degree burglary and receipt of stolen goods. It occurred in Jefferson County, Kentucky, uh, which I believe is around Louisville, but I could be wrong. The defendant was James Kirkland Batson. Uh, this was also a Supreme Court of Kentucky, uh, was the lower court whose decision is being reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court. Petitioner appealed the decision of the Supreme Court of Kentucky that affirmed his conviction despite petitioner's claim that he was denied equal protection through the prosecutor's use of peremptory challenges to exclude members of his race from the petite jury at his trial. At trial, the prosecutor used his peremptory challenge to strike all four minor minority persons on the veneer, and a jury composed only of Caucasians was selected. On petitioner's objection, the trial judge observed that the parties were entitled to use peremptory challenges to strike anyone for any reason. On appeal to the state Supreme Court, petitioner contended the facts established that the prosecution had engaged in a systematic pattern of discriminatory challenges, thus establishing an equal protection violation. 
the state Supreme Court affirmed the conviction. The court reversed and remanded the case to the trial court, holding that if the trial court decided that the facts established prima, prima facie purposeful discrimination and that the prosecution prosecution did not offer a neutral explanation for its actions, petitioner's conviction had to be reversed. The court overruled Swain versus Alabama, 380 U.S. 202, 1965, to the extent that it required petitioner to establish a systematic pattern of discrimination in jury selection. The court reversed petitioner's conviction and remanded the case to trial court for determination of whether the facts established a prima facie case for purposeful discrimination in the prosecutor's use of peremptory and peremptory challenges in jury selection. The requirement of proving a systematic pattern of discrimination was overruled. So this decision was rendered on April 30th, 1986. And that um, was actually, that's the same term as the term we're talking about. My apologies. Um, because the new term was started in October. Uh, and the case was reversed and remanded. The holding was a principal announced in Strada versus West Virginia that a state denies a black defendant equal protection when it puts him on trial before a jury from which members of his race have been purposefully excluded is reaffirmed. And I didn't look at that case. A defendant has no right to a petite jury composed in whole or in part of persons of his own race. However, the Equal Protection Clause guarantees the defendant that the state will not exclude members of his race from the jury veneer on account of race or on the false assumption that members of his race as a group are not qualified to serve as jurors. By denying a person participation in jury service on account of his race, the state also unconstitutionally discriminates against the excluded juror. Moreover, selection procedures that pur purposely exclude Black persons from juries undermine public confidence in the fairness of our system of justice. The same equal protection principles as are applied to determination whether there is discrimination in selecting the veneer also govern the state's use of peremptory challenges to strike juror, individual jurors from the petite jury. Although a prosecutor ordinarily is entitled to exercise peremptory challenges for any reason, as long as that reason is related to his view concerning the outcome of the case to be tried, the Equal Protection Clause forbids a prosecutor to challenge potential jurors solely on account of their race or on the assumption that Black jurors as a group will be unable to impartially consider the state's case against a Black defendant. Um, they re the, Again, they overruled Swain, which placed an evidentiary bar burden on a defendant who claimed that he'd been denied equal protection through the state's discriminatory use of peremptory challenges um, and held that a Black defendant could make a prima facie showing of purposeful racial discrimination in its selection of the veneer by relying solely on the facts concerning its selection in his case. Uh, and their third holding went on to uh, basically that's the procedure where the defendant during jury selection can raise the Batson challenge and then the prosecutor has to give race neutral 
reasons for excluding a juror. Um, and it could be that the juror is related to the defendant or that the juror has expressed an inability to follow the law or that the juror it has a criminal record or, you know, other reasons not connected to race. Uh, that the juror has children and doesn't have childcare, and this is going to be a lengthy trial. It just, you know, there are multiple, uh, it sets up that process. And uh, while the peremptory challenge occupies an important position in trial procedures, the above stated principles will not undermine the contribution that the challenge generally makes to the administration of justice nor will application of such principles create serious administrative difficulties. Um, because the trial court here flatly rejected petitioner's objection to the prosecutor's removal of all black persons on the veneer without requiring the prosecutor to explain his action, the case is remanded for further proceedings. The majority opinion was authored by Justice Powell, joined by Justice Brennan White, Marshall Blackman, Stevens, and O'Connor. Uh, Justice White authored a concurring opinion expressing the view that a prosecutor's use of peremptory challenges in a particular case to strike blacks from the petite jury panel in the trial of a black defendant is proper subject for constitutional inquiry and may raise an inference, which the prosecutor bears the burden of refuting, that such actions were based on the belief that no black citizen can fairly try a black defendant, but that this decision should not be applied retroactively. Justice Marshall expressed the view that the only effective way to prevent the racially discriminatory use of peremptory challenges is to eliminate them in their entirety, uh, which is not going to happen. Justice Stevens, joined by Justice Brennan, expressed the view that the court had properly resolved the equal protection issue in this case, despite defense counsel's failure to rely on the ground of decision in certiorari. In view of the fact that the state had explicitly, explicitly rested on that issue as a controlling basis for affirmance, and that several amicus, amici curiae had also addressed the issue. And O'Connor authored a concurrence expressing the view that the court's decision should not apply retroactively. Justice, Chief Justice Berger, joined by Justice Rehnquist, authored a dissent expressing the view that the court should not have reversed an important constitutional precedent based on an argument which the accused had expressly declined to raise either on certiorari or in the state Supreme Court below without at least directing re-argument briefing on the issue. That the peremptory challenges serve a vital role in the jury trial process and should not be restricted in this manner and that the court's decision should not apply retroactively. Justice Rehnquist authored his own dissent, joined by Chief Justice Berger, expressing the view that the prosecution's use of peremptory challenges to exclude blacks from a particular jury based on the exception or belief that it would be more likely to favor a black defendant as opposed to excluding them from juries in case after case for reasons wholly unrelated to the outcome of the particular case on trial does not violate the Equal Protection Clause, which is weird. Uh, and then the outcome of this one is that um, Swain versus Alabama, a case from 1965, was 
overruled to the extent that it required the petitioner to establish a systematic pattern of discrimination and jury selection. And this set forth a new procedure under which a um, a defend a, a prosecutor is has to rebut an allegation of of discrimination rather than yeah. the plaintiff having to establish right. discrimination. Which it's always hard, right? Because you really can't prove a negative. It's mm -hmm. impossible, right? Correct. So you can't Correct. prove that you weren't discriminating against somebody. Correct. And basically, it, it basically says, you know, I it, what happens a lot of times is I think um, the the defense attorney says objection or goes to the goes to the judge and says I make it a Batson challenge. I think he's I think he's you know excluding this juror using this property challenge because of the juror's race, and that could be African American, Hispanic. It could even be Caucasian. In theory. Yep. Asian in theory. Um, and then the prosecutor has to say, I'm I'm excluding this juror because of a criminal record or it's a long trial and they have no child care, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, where it gets I mean, where it gets kind of gray, right, is because a lot of times on both sides. Counsel will exclude jurors because they believe or prospective jurors because they believe there's a perceived bias, for example, if someone says. I would never vote for the death penalty regardless, or I mm -hmm. hate police, or I believe, you know, whatever. Right. So how do you then separate that from saying, well, yes, I think this, I think this juror is biased, but it's not because of his race. It's because of what, you know, she said, it's, it mm -hmm. seems like a really difficult thing to prove. I, I, no, I don't think it's proven to be that difficult. Um, and I think it actually has not, I think it's actually improved because now there's a record of why jurors were, um, were challenged and excluded. Um, interestingly enough, though, there is no, I don't believe anyway, that there's a place if the prosecutor believes that the defense is employing discriminatory tactics during jury selection. I don't believe that there is a procedure for the prosecution to challenge. Right. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's right. Yeah. It's just a one way well, street. Yeah. Um, which is an interesting, an interesting thing. But um so that is that's batson and we hear about that one quite often um but you know like i said i think it's I, I think it's been helpful because instead of having the specter of discrimination although we did have that in flowers um it with batson you actually have a record of why specific jurors were being excluded and I think that ultimately can be helpful um, unless the court extrapolates and ignores the record, which is what I feel they did in Flowers. But if we talk about that case, we'll talk about that another time. Gotcha. <laughs> um, 
So the next case is Ford versus Wainwright. And that is 477 U.S. 399, uh, also decided in 1986. The original crime was committed on July 21st, 1974. It was a first-degree murder case. It occurred in Fort Lauderdale, Broward County, Florida. Uh, involved proceedings before the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida. Uh, the victim was Fort Lauderdale Police Officer Dimitri Walter Iyankov. The defendant was Alvin Bernard Ford with three unnamed accomplices. Uh, the crime occurred in Broward County and uh, Ford was ultimately arrested in Gainesville, Florida. He was convicted and sentenced to death. Uh, this actually involved was involved was a case involving his federal habeas corpus claims. And so the lower court's decision being reviewed was from the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal. By writ of certiorari, petitioner sought review of an order of the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit that affirmed the trial court's denial of petitioner's request for a writ of habeas corpus, seeking an evidentiary hearing on the question of his competence to be executed. Petitioner was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. Years later, he began to show signs of serious mental disorder. Following the state procedure for determining competency for execution, the governor solicited reports from a panel of psychiatrists who determined petitioner was competent. The governor signed petitioner's death warrant. Petitioner filed for habeas corpus seeking an evidentiary hearing, and the trial court's denial of the petition was affirmed by the appellate court. On appeal from the judgment, the court held that the Eighth Amendment prohibited the execution of the insane and that the procedures used to determine petitioner's competency did not meet the requisite heightened standard of reliability where there was no full and fair hearing. Petitioner could not present evidence. Cross-examination was not permitted, and the decision was made entirely within the executive branch. The judgment was reversed, and the case was remanded for further proceedings. The court reversed the order affirming denial of petitioner's request for habeas corpus relief and remanded for further proceedings where the Eighth Amendment prohibited execution of the insane and where petitioner had been denied fact-finding procedure adequate to afford full and fair hearing on a critical issue of competence to be executed. That decision was rendered on June 26, 1986, reversed and remanded, the holding in part Parts one and two was that the Eighth Amendment prohibits the state from inflicting the death penalty upon a prisoner who is insane. Um, and then um, parts three, four, and I'm going to skip over the moral reasoning behind that holding. Um, the parts three, four, and five Florida's statutory procedures for determining a condemned prisoner's sanity provide inadequate assurance of accuracy to satisfy the requirements of Townsend versus Sane, and that having been denied a fact-finding procedure adequate to afford a full and fair hearing on the critical issue as required by, by 2254 D2, petitioner is titled to a de novo evidentiary hearing in the district court on the question of his competence to be executed. 
No state court has issued any determination to which the presumption of correctness under 2254D could attach. And indeed, no st state court played any role in the rejection of petitioner's claim of insanity. So, um, and, uh, and again, I'm going to kind of, basically, Florida's procedures didn't meet due process requirements because they weren't determined within courts after hearing they were determined in the executive branch uh, on essentially a paper record. <clears throat> so Justice Marshall, uh, joined by Justice Brennan, Blackman, Powell, and Stevens authored parts one and two. He also authored parts three, four, and five, joined by Justices Brennan, Blackman, and Stevens. Um, Powell authored a concurring opinion expressing the view that the Eighth Amendment prohibits the ex execution of those who are unaware of the punishment they are about to suffer and why are they, to, they are to suffer it, that the accused claim of insanity fit within the standard that Florida's procedures did not comport with due process because he was deprived of the opportunity to be heard, that on remand, the district court must consider the accused competency to be executed and that a full-scale sanity trial to determine a prisoner's, prisoner's competency to be executed was not required, but that the state should provide an impartial officer or board that can receive evidence and argument from the prisoner's counsel, including expert psychiatric evidence that may differ from the state's own psychiatric examination. Uh, Justice O'Connor, joined by Justice White, also concurred in the result. O'Connor, joined by Justice White, also, they concurred in part, but they dissented as well, expressing the view that the Eighth Amendment did not create a substantive right not to be executed while insane, but that Florida, in creating a protected liberty interest in avoiding execution while incompetent, did not give the opportunity to be heard to the accused and thus did not provide even minimal due process protection um, so they felt the judgment below should be vacated and the case remanded to the Court of Appeals with directions that it be returned to the Florida system so a hearing could be held in a manner consistent with the requirements of the Due Process Clause. Rehnquist, joined by Chief Justice Berger, expressed the view that the Eighth Amendment does not prohibit a state from carrying out the death sentence upon a person who is currently insane and that wholly executive procedures can satisfy due process in the context of a post-trial, post-appeal, and post-collateral attack challenge to a state's effort to carry out a lawfully imposed sentence. Um, then the you, uh, Court of Appeals, and I think it was the 11th Circuit, because I think this was after Florida was split to the 11th Circuit, issued an opinion on November 10, 1986, reversing and remanding um <clears throat> and then the case went back to the florida court system and an opinion was issued on february 18 1988 uh, affirming the denial of his of ford's motion for post-conviction relief and appellant's motion for habeas corpus relief um which was not dealing with his sanity. Um, 
and challenged his death sentence. Uh, so I'm going to kind of skip over that. <laughs> and then um, he appealed that decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, which was denied on March 6, 1989. An evidentiary hearing was held in 1989. And uh, while the state maintained that uh, Ford was malingering and even if psychotic was not incompetent because he understood the consequences of his actions. The defense presented psychological and psychiatric testimony that Ford was schizophrenic. Uh, the judge's ruling was that Ford was competent to be executed, was appealed on two issues, whether the finding was erroneous and whether a condemned person who suffered from schizophrenia and was intermittently rendered incompetent was competent to be executed. However, this appeal was never decided because Alvin Ford died in prison of natural causes on February 26, 1991 in Alachua County, Florida. So um, this is a this is a procedural one. And I think we've we've seen Ford versus Rainwright in Cottingham. No, in Benjamin Cole, I think in um it was Cole, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like Cole, one of the and then the ones. Fairbanks. I think that's right. Um, so that's you know that's now the the hallmark case for competency to be executed and procedures for competency be, to be executed. Um, and I think most states instituted kind of hybrid executive reviewed by judicial proceedings that would address competency to be executed when it's raised. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, next case is Murray versus Carrier. 477 U.S. 478, 1986. Uh, this case involved a rape and abduction. It occurred in Virginia, and um, the U.S. District Court, Eastern District of Virginia, is actually, this was on, I guess, post-conviction relief. Um, the victim's name is unknown. The defendant was Clifford Carrier. He was convicted in 1977. Um, he sought review at the U.S. Supreme Court of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals decision in his um, or actually the director of the Department of Corrections sought review of the Fourth Circuit's um, decision reversing and remanding the district court's dismissal of Carrier's habeas petition wherein uh, it asserted a discovery claim as grounds for relief where Carrier had asserted a discovery claim as grounds for relief. Uh, Carrier was convicted of rape and abduction. His counsel failed to include as an assigned error on appeal a claim that the victim's statements were withheld from respondent. Respondent filed a habeas petition, which the district court dismissed. The appeals court reversed and remanded, and, and the director of Department of Corrections appealed. The court reversed, holding that counsel's failure to raise a particular claim on appeal was to be scrutinized under the cause and prejudice standard when that failure was treated as a procedural default by the state courts and attorney error short of ineffective 
assistance of counsel did not constitute cause for procedural default on appeal because respondent failed to allege any external impediment that might have presented counsel from raising his discovery claim in his petition for review. The cause was remanded to determine whether the victim's statements contained material that would have established respondent's actual innocence. The court reversed and remanded, holding the counsel error short of ineffective assistance did not constitute cause for procedural default on appeal because respondent failed to allege any external impediment that might have prevented counsel from raising his discovery claim in his petition for review. So that decision was rendered on June 26, 1986. Um, and the court held that a federal habeas petitioner such as respondent cannot show cause for procedural fault default by establishing that competent defense counsel's failure to raise a substantive claim of error was inadvertent rather than deliberate. The mere fact that counsel failed to recognize the factual or legal basis for a claim or failed to raise a claim despite recognize it does not constitute cause for a procedural default. The question of cause for procedural default does not turn on whether counsel erred or on the kind of error counsel may have made, so long as the defendant is represented by counsel whose performance is not constitutionally ineffective under the standard established in Strickland, there is no inequity in require him, requiring him to bear the risk of attorney error that results in a procedural default. Instead, the existence of cause for a procedural default must ordinarily turn on whether the prisoner can show that some objective factor external to the defense impeded counsel's efforts to comply with the state's procedural rule. While ineffective assistance of counsel constitutes cause for procedural default, the exhaustion doctrine generally requires that an ineffective assistance claim be presented to the state courts as an independent claim before it may be used to establish cause for a procedural default in federal habeas proceedings. There is no merit to respondents' argument that even if counsel's ignorance or inadvertence does not constitute cause for procedural default at trial, it does constitute cause for procedural default on appeal. A state's procedural rules serve vital purposes on appeal, as well as at trial and on state collateral attack, and the standard for cause should not vary depending on the timing of a procedural default. Um, and I'm not going to go through these are these are quite extensive. Um, essentially, Carrier didn't allege an external impediment that might have prevented counsel from raising his discovery claim in his state petition for review and has disavowed any claim that counsel's performance on appeal was so deficient as to make out an ineffective assistance claim. Accordingly, his petition for federal habeas review of his procedural defaulted discovery claim must be dismissed for failure to establish cause for the default. Unless it is determined on remand, the victim statements contain material that would establish respondents' actual innocence. The opinion was authored by Justice O'Connor, joined by Chief Justice Berger, Justice White, Justice Powell, and Rehnquist. Uh, Justice Stevens, joined by Justice Blackman, concurred in the judgment, expressing the view that the cause and prejudice formula of Wainwright versus Sykes is not dispositive when the fundamental fairness of a prisoner's conviction is at issue, that appellate procedural default should not foreclose habeas corpus review 
of a meritorious constitutional claim that may establish a prisoner's innocence and that it was therefore proper to remand the case for further proceedings on the substance of the accused claims. Justice Brennan, joined by Justice Marshall, authored a dissent expressing the view that the cause and prejudice test of Wainwright versus Sykes was an illegitimate exercise of the Supreme Court's very limited discretion to order federal courts to decline to entertain habeas corpus petitions, and that even accepting the validity of that test causes established where a procedural default resulted from counsel's inadvertence. So this kind of expands on Strickland. Um, and I didn't look at the subsequent history on this one. Um, this is one of those cases that I think we'll, we'll look at um, independently. So I didn't want to spoil anything. You still there, Kyle? Sorry, I was trying to <laughs> unmute. I was having a hard time. It's like my my uh my computer was being weird trying to unmute. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting case. It deserves a a much deeper uh, explication than just the Supreme Court or the yeah. the court ruling. Yeah. It's a really interesting case. So a lot um, of complex stuff there to wrap your head around. Yeah, yeah. Um. So next case is Tyson versus Arizona. 481 U.S. 137, and this one was decided in 1987. So this is during the 1986-1987 term. Pardon me. Uh, the original crime, or underlying crime, occurred on July 30th, 1978. It involved four counts of first-degree murder in Arizona, two counts of armed robbery, three counts of kidnapping, and one count of theft of a motor vehicle. Uh, the jurisdiction and venue was Yuma County, Arizona. Uh, there was also a murder of, or two, a different, two additional murders committed in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, not tried in Arizona, and uh, apparently not tried at all. Uh, the victims in the case were John Lyons, Danelda Lyons, Christopher Lyons, age two, and Teresa Tyson, age 15, and then James Judge and Mark Jean Judge, uh, who were murdered in Colorado. The defendants in this case were Ricky Wayne Tyson and Raymond Curtis Tyson. Their accomplices were Gary Tyson, their father, who died on August 21st, 1978. Donald Tyson, their brother, who died on August 11th, 1978. And Randy Greenewalt. Okay, I'm sorry. Is this just a really weird coincidence this... that the defendants are T I S O N and one of the victims was T Y S O N? I was like, I thought it was a typo at first, and then I was like, wait, this no. is what are the odds? It it is not. Um, and this case involves basically Donald, Ricky, and Raymond broke their father. And Randy Greenwald, their father Gary, and their and Randy Greenwald out of prison in Arizona, um, which means that Ricky Wayne Tyson, Raymond Curtis Tyson, and Donald Tyson all came armed with weapons, which were used in the prison break, 
And I think this, the, these are a couple of cases that I think we also will look at um, independently uh, at some point in time because the convoluted history makes me want to take a deeper dive. Anyway, uh, they were convicted of felony murder and sentenced to death in Arizona. Um, they were, I believe, tried together, but their appeals were separate. And the decision being reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court was the, that of the Supreme Court of Arizona. Uh, the petitioners challenged the decision of the Supreme Court of Arizona that affirmed the trial court's decision that upheld the imposition of the death penalty against petitioner when the court found that petitioners intended to kill four members of family, even though neither petitioner pulled the triggers. Petitioners were involved in an armed robbery that left four members of a family dead. Neither petitioner pulled the triggers of the guns that inflicted the fatal wounds. The trial court found petitioners guilty and sentenced them to death. The state Supreme Court affirmed the decision. The Supreme Court granted certiorari to determine whether the death sentences were constitutionally permissible. The court found that the state Supreme Court applied an erroneous standard to reach its holding. The court found the state Supreme Court tried to include the element of foreseeability in the intent to kill when it found that petitioners intended to kill the victims. The court concluded that petitioners did not fall within the intent to kill category. Therefore, the court found the death sentence to be disproportionate to the crime of armed robbery committed by the petitioners. The court vacated the lower court's decision and remanded the case. Uh, this decision was rendered on April 21st, 1987, which is my nephew's date of birth. Interesting. <laughs> um, like the, the actual, was... the full-on month, month, day, and year, everything, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's to the day. Um, and the, the date that my sister predicted because her birthday is the 21st of the month. Her husband's birthday was the 21st of the month and their son's birthday is the 21st of the month. Not the same month, but you get the picture. Right. Although petitioners neither intended to kill the victims nor inflicted the fatal wounds, the record might support a finding that they had the culpable mental state of reckless indifference to human life. The Eighth Amendment does not prohibit the death penalty as disproportionate in the case of a defendant whose participation in a felony that results in murder is major and whose mental state is one of reckless indifference. A survey of state felony murder laws and judicial decisions after Enman indicates a societal consensus consensus that the that combination of factors may justify the death penalty even without a specific intent to kill. Reckless disregard for human life also represents a highly culpable mental state that may support a capital sentencing judgment in combination with ma major participation in the felony resulting in death. Because the Arizona Supreme Court affirmed these death sentences upon a finding that defendants intended, contemplated, or anticipated that lethal force would, would or might be used or that life would or might be taken, the case must be remanded. The majority opinion was authored by Justice O'Connor, joined by Chief Justice Rehnquist, Justice White, uh, Powell, and Scalia. 
The dissent was authored by Justice Brennan, who was joined by Justice Marshall and joined in part by Justice Blackman and Stevens, except as to point five below. Um, and they all expressed the view that foreseeability of harm is not equivalent to intent for purposes of assessing the propriety of capital punishment, that the facts of the case did not show that the sons had acted with reckless disregard for human life with respect to the shootings, that it has not been shown in accordance with established rules of proportionality analysis that major participation in a felony with a state of mind of reckless indifference to human life deserves the same punishment as intending to commit a murder or actually committing a murder. That this case demonstrates a failure to develop procedural machinery that is capable of distinguishing the few cases in which the death penalty is imposed from the many in which it is not. And this is point five that's not universally agreed on by the dissenters that in view of the arbitrariness which continues to infect capital sentencing, the death penalty should be regarded in all circumstances as cruel and unusual punishment prohibited by the 8th and 14th Amendments, and that's just Brennan and Marshall. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court denied a motion for rehearing on June 8, 1987. The case was remanded to the Yuma Superior Court for uh, findings in accordance with Enman by the Supreme Court of Arizona. Um, and then on the Supreme Court of Arizona issued its opinion on May 2nd, 1989, State versus Tyson. Defendants sought review of a decision for the, of the Superior Court of Yuma County, Arizona, which on remand concluded that an evidentiary hearing was unnecessary found that defendants had possessed a reckless indifference to human life and resentenced defendants to death. The United States Supreme Court had vacated the previous judgment and held that the court had applied an erroneous standard in making Edmund findings. The court remanded for such Edmund findings as were appropriate. The trial court concluded that an evidentiary hearing was unnecessary, found that each defendant possessed a reckless indifference to human life and resentenced them to death. On appeal, the court stated that when it remanded the case, it intended for the trial court to conduct an evidentiary hearing. It was the function of the trial court to make Edmund findings, and those findings had to be made beyond a reasonable doubt. The court found that Edmund findings were constitutional prerequisites to the consideration of a death penalty, so the death sentence was vacated, and the case was once again remanded to the trial court um, for resentencing. Uh, and then in 1992, the death sentences were overturned and each Tyson was sentenced to death, uh, to life in prison. And on J January 24th, 1997, Randy Greenwald was sentenced to death. I mean, executed rather. He, he had been sentenced to death in a, a separate proceeding. Um, and, and personally, I mean, Donald was killed in a shootout with police on August 11th. Gary escaped into the, de the desert and was found days later dead. Hmm. Um, they engaged in a shootout with police. They broke through a, a roadblock at one point during their time. They went into Colorado. They killed more people. Um, you know, I, I don't see how these 
they went to the prison with guns to break their father out of prison. And their father was no fucking prize. So, Seriously. you know, um, you know, I, I, I don't think that the death sentences were unfair in this case. And they were there. They just happened to be walking away when the, when the shots were fired, killing, uh, the family in Arizona. But we'll look at we'll look at take a deeper dive into that case. Yeah, it's kind of like the whole the the guy driving the getaway vehicle getting charged with, you know, capital murder. Right. Mm -hmm. And but, you know, I think. Um, I think if you go to participate in a robbery and you know that the person you're participating in the robbery with has a gun. You know that that gun could be used to kill someone. Right. Yeah, you know um, that you're you're you are I mean, at least facilitating the possibility. Yeah, and and if there. you're the one who's bringing them to the place to rob, and if you're the one who said, "Hey, they have a lot of money, go rob them," you know, I and that's the one I disagreed with Enman because, as I recall from the facts of the case, and we can look at Enman again too, or in more depth. Enman is the one who knew the people had money. And he kind of facilitated the robbery. Right. Yeah. If it wasn't for him. And, and that seemed, yeah, exactly. It. You know, I, I think there was another case from Ohio um, that we looked at with the woman where the pawn shop was robbed. Or that might be a later case. I can't remember. I've lost track. I had, I had, I bit off more than I could chew. <laughs> For sure. All right. Uh, next case, Mills versus Maryland, 486 U.S. 367, 1988. Uh, the underlying crime was uh, the August 6, 1984, first degree murder of Paul Robin Brown. The crime occurred in the Maryland Correctional Institution in Hagerstown, Allegheny County, Maryland. The defendant was Ralph William Mills. He was convicted in March 1985. And the decision being reviewed is of the Court of Appeals of Maryland. Defendant sought review of the decision of the Maryland Court of Appeals, which affirmed his death sentence. He contended the Maryland capital punishment statute, as applied to him, was unconstitutional, unconstitutionally mandatory because it required jurors to impose a death sentence if they unanimously found an aggravating circumstance, but could not unanimously agree that any particular mitigating circumstance was present. Defendant was convicted of the first-degree murder of his cellmate and sentenced to death. He appealed the sentence imposed and conceded that the contended, rather, that the state's death penalty statute as applied was unconstitutionally mandatory because it required jurors to impose a death, death sentence if they unanimously found an aggravating circumstance but could not unanimously agree that any particular mitigating circumstances were present even if some or all jurors believed that some mitigating circumstance was present. The state court of appeals affirmed, but the court vacated the sentence. The court held that a jury could not be precluded from considering as a mitigating factor any relevant factor proffered by defendant as a basis for a sentence less than death. The court concluded there was a substantial probability that reasonable jurors, upon receiving the trial court's instructions in this case, 
and in attempting to complete the verdict form as instructed, may have thought they were precluded from considering any mitigating evidence unless they all agreed on the existence of a particular circumstance. Uh, so this was vacated and remanded. And basically, um, this goes to a case that impacts sentencing in death penalty cases because it changes how state sentencing instructions are presented to juries and how juries are now allowed to apply any mitigation that they feel diminishes the defendant's culpability for the crime and to result in a life sentence rather than a death sentence. So that's basically. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, we're getting a little short on time, so I'm not going to go through the extensive holding in this one. Um, nor am I going to go through the concurrences and the, the dissents uh, to any great degree. The majority opinion was authored by Justice Blackman, who is joined by Justice Brennan, White, Marshall, and Stevens. Uh, Justice Brennan also issued a concurrence. Justice White issued a, a concurrence as well. Chief Justice Rehnquist dissented, joined by Justices O'Connor, Scalia, and Kennedy. And basically, they disagreed regarding the relevant inquiry in such cases. They felt it should be whether, not whether an impermissible interpretation of jury instructions is possible, but rather what a reasonable juror would have understood those instructions to mean. Um, and they oh. felt that in this case, a reasonable juror would have understood the instructions of verdict, verdict form as requiring the jury to be unanimous in finding that no mitigating factors existed that should be weighed against the aggravating circumstances. Um, Just out of curiosity, do you think the average juror, you know, like to what degree do they really pay attention to the jury instructions? Meaning from they completely ignore them to it's like absolute literal, you know, whatever well, those instructions say they follow or at the end of their, do they just sort of do what they kind of think is the right thing to do in their own minds? I, I can't, I haven't sat on a jury myself, but I, as I understand it, first of all, the jurors do get a copy of the instructions. And if the jurors have a question about the instructions, they can send a question to the judge who then consults with the parties and comes up with an answer. Um, I, I think that they do. I mean, the presumption in the law is that jurors do as they're instructed, follow the instructions and, um, follow the law and it takes a lot to undermine a jury's decision claiming otherwise so um i think they do and they have a copy of the instructions and they're 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 uh given the instructions live in court and then they have a copy in the court in the to deliberate during deliberations and again and some, but sometimes when they have a question about the instructions, they're instructed to look at the instructions 
to read the instructions. Um, and but that also gives the jurors and the jury foreman an opportunity to address the instructions and make sure that everybody on the jury understands them. So I think that they do. And I think that this one was this particular decision was kind of second guessing a jury's understanding and saying they didn't understand when you have no evidence that that's the case. Right. That makes so, sense. um, but yeah, that one is, uh, that one is, that one has resulted in Mami Abu Jamal's death sentence being reversed because there was a similar flaw in uh, the instructions used by the trial court in, in his case. Even though he was tried before Mills was decided. But that's another story. <laughs> so there always is the rest of the story. <laughs> yeah, there is. And that's another case. That's like a three parter, though, because it's been going on since 1982. 1981. The original crime occurred on December 9th, 1981. Um, a year and a day after John Lennon's assassination. All right, next case, Teague versus Lane, 489 U.S. 288, cited in 1989. Uh, the underlying crime occurred on February 5th, 1977. It involved three counts of attempted murder, two counts of armed robbery, and one count of aggravated battery. Uh, it occurred in Cook County, Illinois, in Chicago, or in the Chicago area. Uh, it also involved the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois Eastern Division. The victims were Naaman Roby, Klaus Cage, and an unnamed customer. The defendant was Frank Dean Teague Jr. He was convicted of attempted murder and armed robbery and sentenced to 30 years per count. So um, 30 years times six. That's 180 years. Uh, the court's decision being reviewed is from the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, petitioner prisoner was convicted by an all-white jury of attempted murder of armed robbery and aggravated battery. The United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit held that the prisoner's fair cross-section argument was procedurally barred, meritless, and could not benefit from a recent Supreme Court decision because the case could not be applied retroactively to cases on collateral review. The prisoner was granted certiorari. The court took the opportunity to clarify how the question of retroactivity should be resolved for cases on collateral review. The court held that the decision of retroactivity should be addressed at the time of the new rule decision. New constitutional rules of criminal procedure were not retroactively applicable to cases that became final before the decision was announced, unless one of two exceptions applied. A new rule would be applied retroactively if it placed certain kinds of primary 
private individual conduct beyond the power of the criminal lawmaking authority to prescribe, or if it required the observance of those bedrock procedural elements that were absolutely prerequisite to fundamental fairness implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Habeas corpus could not be used as a vehicle to create new constitutional rules of criminal procedure unless those rules would be applied retroactively through one of these two exceptions. Because a decision extending the fair cross-section requirement to the pettit jury would not be applied retroactively to cases on collateral review under this approach, the court reviews, refused to address the petitioner's claim. And so the judgment of the Court of Appeals was affirmed. Uh, that decision was rendered on February 22nd, 1989. The holdings were in parts one, two, and three, Allen versus Hardy prevented petitioner from benefiting from the rule announced in Batson since his conviction became final before Batson was decided. The opinions filed in McRae, which involved the question whether the Constitution prohibits use of peremptory challenges to exclude members of a particular group from the jury, based on the prosecutor's assumption that they would be biased in favor of other members of the same group, did not destroy Swain's presidential effect as petitioner urges they did. Since the denial of certiorari imports no expression of opinion on the merits of the case, and concomitantly, opinions of accompanying such denial cannot have the same effect as decisions on the merits. Um, they held he was procedurally barred, procedurally barred from raising the claim that he had established a violation of the Equal Protection Clause under Swain, and that Swain did not exclude preclude an examination of the prosecutor's stated reasons for his peremptory challenge to determine the legitimacy the legitimacy of his motive. Uh, since petitioner did not raise the Swain claim at trial or on direct appeal, he forfeited review of the claim in collateral proceedings. Under Wainwright versus Sykes, he's barred from raising the claim in a federal habeas proceeding since he made no attempt to show cause for his default and the Illinois appellate court, contrary to his contention, did not address the Swain claim. And then parts four and five, um, Uh, a decision extending the petite jury, the Sixth Amendment requirement that jury veneer be drawn from a fair cross-section of the community would not be applied retroactively to cases on collateral review, and therefore his cross-section cross claim will not be addressed. Um, and then they go on to several sub-holdings uh, dealing with retroactive application of new new procedural rules, which, um, again, uh, my apologies, because we're kind of pressed for time. I don't want to belabor. <laughs> and the author of this opinion was in the 50 cent word day. Um, <laughs> as Justice O'Connor was wont to do. Uh, parts one, two, and three were authored by yeah. Justice O'Connor. And it was a procurium opinion. Hmm. Parts four and five were author, author, authored by Justice O'Connor, and she was joined by Chief Justice Rehnquist, Justice White, Justice Scalia, and Justice Kennedy. Um, White concurred in part in the judgment and joined as to one and two 
holdings, which I went through above. Uh, also concurred in parts four and five, uh, finding that such result was an acceptable application to collateral proceedings of the retroactivity theories embraced by the Supreme Court in cases dealing with direct review. Justice Blackmun also had a concurrence uh, joining in the opinion uh, and concurring in the result as to the Swain versus Alabama claim. Stevens also concurred. Um, and the dissent, of course, was Justices Brennan joined by Justice Marshall expressing the view that he would reach the merits of the accused Sixth Amendment argument and hold in the accused's favor, and that through Supreme Court's precedents did not justify the court's limiting, in the present case, the cognizability of constitutional claims on federal habeas corpus review. Um, so this was, uh, this is kind of an interesting case, although I don't know that I'll necessarily take a deep dive because they're, as you can see from, I don't have dates for a lot of stuff because even the state court petitions and uh, opinions didn't have a lot of information date-wise and and victim-wise. Um, the next case is Penry versus Lineoff, 492 U.S. 302, 1989. Oh, Lisa, are you still there? Yeah. Oh, did I did I fade out? You still there, Kyle? I know. I see you're muted. Oh, sorry, I got you. Sorry, I lost you for a minute, but I'm back. I Yeah, I'm getting a message that my inter internet connection is unstable. Oh, goodness. Oh, okay. Um, so, I, I'm... If I fade out for any length of time, please advise me of that. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, Penry versus Lineau is our next case, 492 U.S. 302, decided in 1989. The underlying crime was capital murder, which was committed on October 15, 1979 in Livingston, Polk County, Texas. The victim was Pamela Carpenter. The defendant was Johnny Paul Penry. Uh, Penry was on parole at the time of the capital murder for rape. He was arrested in Polk County, Texas. He sought a change of venue, and his case was tried in Trinity County, Texas. He was convicted and sentenced to death. Uh, the decision being reviewed was that of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. He sought a writ of certiorari to the U.S. District Court, or the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, to challenge his death penalty on the basis that he was sentenced to death in violation of the Eighth Amendment because the jury was not instructed that it could consider his mitigating evidence in imposing its sentence and that the Eighth Amendment prohibited the execution because of his mental retardation. Uh, defendant claimed to have the intelligence of a nine or 10 year old and he was unable to learn from his mistakes. At the close of the penalty hearing, the jury was asked to respond to three special issues, none of which authorized the discretionary grant of mercy based upon the existence of mitigating circumstances. The court concluded that the jury was not provided with a vehicle for expressing its reasoned moral response to the mitigating evidence in rendering its sentencing decision. The matter was before the court on an appeal of a petition for a writ of habeas corpus. The court held that as a threshold matter, a new rule would not be applied or announced in cases on collateral review. 
Defendants request that mental retardation be a bar to capital punishment would have been a new rule. However, the court found varying degrees of competence among those diagnosed with retardation. Defendant was found competent to stand trial. He had the ability to consult with his lawyer and with a reasonable with a reasonable degree of rational understanding and understood the proceedings against him. The court could not conclude that the Eighth Amendment precluded the execution of defendant based solely on his retardation. The court remanded the matter for further proceedings so that a jury could consider defendant's mitigating circumstances in determining whether to impose the death penalty. So this decision was uh, issued on June 26, 1989. Uh, the Supreme Court affirmed in part, reversed in part, and remanded. Um. And I'm not going to go over the holdings because they are extensive. And I'm just going to go through the decision, um, which is basically that uh, he needed to be, he was entitled to resentencing. Now, the reason I disagreed with this, and we'll look at Penry's case in depth in future. Uh, the reason I disagreed with this is because at his trial, I, I read the state court opinions and even the federal habeas opinion at one time. The jury had information that his claims of mental retardation were not as severe as he, the defense claimed. So they had competing, he's, you know, got the mentality of a nine or 10 year old and there was competing uh, evidence that he was malingering and that his actual mental retardation was not as severe as it was made to sound. So uh, he got a new sentencing proceeding. Um, Justices Brennan and Marshall uh, dissented, and basically they felt that the Supreme Court should come down and say, executing the mentally retarded is a violation of the eighth amendment. Um, and, uh, justice Stevens and justice Scalia joined by Rehnquist, white and Kennedy, uh, felt that the court went too far in this decision. Um, and basically, uh, should have at least had briefing and argument specific to the claims as they had evolved before the court. Um, Penry was granted a change of venue in Walker County. Uh, it appears that he was retried both as to guilt or innocence and sentence, but he was again convicted and sentenced to death. He uh, on direct appeal on February 22nd, 1995, his uh, conviction was affirmed and um, his capital punishment was not cruel and unusual. He filed a writ of habeas corpus in the federal district court um, and that was uh basically not successful. And then he went back to the U S Supreme court 
and he was reversed in part because the jury's instructions failed to adequately instruct the jury regarding mitigating evidence. Uh, so he was uh, basically went back to federal court where the Fifth Circuit reevaluated, remanded back to state court. He was retried, sentenced to death again. Um, that sentence was affirmed again. Oh wait, no, um, my 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 mistake. The state court of criminal appeals reversed his his sentence and remanded for a new punishment trial. And the final outcome was he entered a plea on February 15, 2008 to rape and murder one count, kidnapping and assault two counts involving two other rapes that he had committed. And he got three consecutive life sentences. So uh, we will definitely look at Mr. Johnny Paul Penry's case. It's probably going to be a two-parter as well. But um, we will definitely look at Johnny Paul Penry's case. I think you have the schedule for the not next five years uh, lined up. <laughs> <laughs> I I think we probably, I think probably just on this review alone, we're getting into um, at least season three. But the good <laughs> thing is it's, it's going to be new cases that, either I haven't covered before or if I covered them before on on a prior podcast um like the next case we're about to talk about um it was with guests so the the legal ramifications and legal wrangling wasn't as big a piece of the of the coverage as it might have been so um, we'll look at that. Uh, the next case uh, to keep moving on, Coleman versus Thompson, 501 U.S. 722. And that was decided in 1991. Um, the underlying crime is a rape and capital murder that occurred on March 10th, 1981. It occurred in Grundy, Buchanan County, Virginia. Uh, it also involved habeas corpus uh, denial by the U.S. District Court, Western District of Virginia, Roanoke Division. The victim was Wanda Faye Thompson McCoy, who was 19. The defendant was Roger Keith Coleman. Um, Roger Keith Coleman's prior crimes included an April 7, 1977 attempted rape for which he served three years in prison after his conviction. Uh, in that case, he knocked on the door of Brenda R.'s house in Grundy asking for a glass of water. When Brenda let him in the house, he pulled a gun and forced her to tie up her six-year-old daughter. When she refused his order to undress, Coleman ripped open her bathrobe, threw her on the bed, and got on top of her. Brenda was able to scratch Coleman's neck and escape, fleeing the house with her daughter. Coleman pursued, but during a struggle, Brenda got his gun threw it under the porch and began screaming for help. Coleman fled when neighbors responded to Brenda's cries for help. Uh, Coleman also on January, in January, 1981 exposed himself 
and masturbated in front of Patricia H. and Jean G. at the Grundy Public Library. Neither woman knew Coleman, but Jean produced a sketch that matched him. Uh, police ignored the incident. Uh, and I would say the local Grundy police um, at least should have talked to Roger Coleman and put the fear of God into him. And um, that they didn't likely is what led to Wanda Faye's murder. Because she did know him. Anyway, uh, Coleman was arrested on April 13th, 1981 in Grundy, Buchanan County, uh, Virginia. I don't know why I have Texas. Lord help me on my notes. Uh, and he was convicted in 1982 and sentenced to death. In 1990, he was able to get DNA testing done, which was a primitive form of DNA testing. Uh, his yeah, that expert, was really, did you say 90? That's really 1990. Yeah, right. It was, um, and I'm hang on just a sec. I had a little, little itch in my interior ear that was driving me nuts. Um, yeah, that was November 7th, 1990, that uh, his expert issued a report. Um, there were some, it was, I think, genetic markers, not nuclear DNA genetic, but some genetic markers and some enzyme uh, characteristics had been Although this refers to alleles, so it likely is a, a, a an early... I mean, DNA testing started in the 1980s in England, mid to late 1980s. So 1990, it was early forms, and it probably was only a couple of loci or one loci. I mean, but again, it was genetic. And it was more specific than ABO blood typing. All right. Yeah. So like a, a little bit more, adva more advanced than blood more advanced type, than but blood not type. as precise as we have today. But not as precise. Correct. Okay. So Coleman's expert, Dr. Ed Edward Blake, reported that he found three types of alleles in the sperm samples taken from the victim. Uh, he found 1.3, 2, and 4 and paired two of those alleles to conclude that Coleman could not be eliminated as the primary donor of the sperm. Such particular genotype is found only in 2% of the population. Additionally, evidence showed that Coleman and the primary donor had ABO blood type B, which occurs in 10% of the population. When combined with the PCR DNA testing, the ABO narrows the percentage of the population with the, these characteristics to 0.2%. So, um, in 1990, Coleman could not be excluded as the donor of the sperm. And only 0.2% of the population would be included as donors of the sperm. Um, that is a significant point 
against Coleman. That is a significant point that points toward his guilt. Um, the decision being reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court was the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal. Uh, appellant inmates sought to overturn the order of the United States District Court for the Western District of Virginia, which denied the inmates' request for a writ of habeas corpus. The inmate was convicted of rape and capital murder. His direct appeals failed and his petition for writ of habeas corpus was denied by the state circuit court. The inmate's appeal of the state decision was one day late and the state court refused to hear the appeal of the denial of his petition based upon the inmate's failure to comply with Rule 59A of the Virginia Supreme Court. The lower court held that the inmate's procedural default barred his federal habeas corpus petition. The court affirmed and held that the inmate lost federal review of his claim because of his state court procedural default. Because the facts underlying the inmate's conviction were so strong, the exception to the rule of procedural default that applied in instances of a gross miscarriage of justice did not apply. The court also ruled that the inmate's death sentence did not violate the Eighth Amendment because the state Supreme Court adequately reviewed his sentence. The court affirmed the order of the lower court, which denied the inmate's request for a writ of habeas corpus. So on June 24th, 1991, uh, the Court of Appeals was affirmed. Coleman's claims presented for the first time in state habeas proceeding are not subject to review in federal habeas. Because of comedy and federalism concerns and the requirement that states have the first opportunity to correct their own mistakes, Federal habeas courts generally may not review a state court's denial of a state prisoner's federal constitutional claim if the state's court's decision rests on state procedural default that is independent of the federal question and adequate to support the prisoner's continued custody. And that's pursuant to Wainwright versus Sykes, which is a case that I missed in our earlier review. Since ambiguous state court decisions can make it difficult for a federal habeas court to apply the independent and adequate state ground doctrine, this court has created a conclusive presumption that there is no such ground as the decision of the last state court to which the prisoner presented his federal claims fairly appeared to rest primarily on the resolution of those claims or to be interwoven with those claims and did not clearly and expressly rely on an independent and adequate state court state ground. There is no merit to Coleman's contention that the Harris presumption applies in all cases in which the state habeas court's decision does not clearly and expresses, expressly state that it was based on an independent and adequate state ground. The holding of Harris is not changed by the fact that in one particular exposition of its rule, the court announced the plain statement requirement without mentioning the predicate requirement that the state court's decision must fairly appear to rest primarily on or to be interwoven with federal law. And I'm going to actually skip over that discussion of the Harris presumption uh, because it doesn't apply in this case. The Virginia Supreme Court's dismissal order fairly appears to rest primarily yeah. on state law since it does not mention federal law and granted the Commonwealth's dismissal motion, which was based solely on Coleman's failure to meet Rule 5, colon 9A's time requirements. There is no merit to Coleman's argument that the dismissal was not independent of federal law 
because the Virginia court applied its procedural bar only after determining that doing so would not abridge one of his federal constitutional rights, such that federal rule is permissible under Aki versus Oklahoma. And again, the, these are quite um, extensive and perhaps I'll go into them uh, a little bit later uh, when we look at Coleman's case individually, because we are. <laughs> um, uh, and um, one of the things Coleman did raise was our attorney error. It was the attorney's error that led to the failure of the Virginia Supreme Court to review the underlying post-conviction claim. Uh, but the court held that although Coleman argues that attorney error may be of sufficient magnitude to excuse a procedural default in federal habeas, even though no Sixth Amendment claim is possible, this argument is insufficient inconsistent with the language and logic of carrier, which explicitly says that in the absence of a constitutional violation, the petitioner bears the risk in federal habeas for all attorney errors made in the course of the representation. Nor is there merit to Coleman's contention that at least as to the federal ineffective assistance claims that he first presented to the state habeas trial court, attorney error in a state habeas appeal must constitute cause because under Virginia law at the time of his trial and direct appeal, claims of that type could only be brought in state habeas. Although an indigent criminal defendant is constitutionally entitled to effective attorney in his one and only appeal as of right, Coleman has had his one and only appeal as to the claims in question since the county circuit court fully addressed and denied those claims. He does not have a constitutional right to counsel on appeal from that determination. Thus, since any attorney era, era that led to the default of those claims cannot constitute cause, and since Coleman does not argue in this court that federal review of the claims is necessary to prevent a fundamental miscarriage of justice, he is barred from bringing the claims of federal habeas. The majority opinion was authored by Justice O'Connor. She was joined by Chief Justice Rehnquist, White, White Scalia, Kennedy, and Souter. Uh, White concurred in the judgment and um, the, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> Justice Black, Justice Blackman joined by Justice Marshall and Stevens authored a dissent, uh, basically disagreeing with the determination that ineffective assistance of counsel cannot constitute cause for procedural default in a state post-conviction proceeding. Uh, arguing that it was patently unfair, particularly in the case at hand, in which state law at the time of the accused appeal precluded defendants from raising on direct appeal claims of ineffective assistance of counsel during the trial and appeal. Uh, then uh, rehearing was denied on September 13, 1991. Coleman filed a writ of habeas corpus in uh, federal district court again, a second subsequent writ, um, which was denied on May 12th, 1992. Um, and basically, uh, the court found that defendant did not make a colorable showing of actual innocence that would entitle him to an evidentiary hearing or to habeas corpus relief. 
The ruling by the Virginia Supreme Court established either that defendant knew of his claims when he filed his previous habeas petitions and that the claims were reasonably available to him. The nature of the procedural default found by the state court removed the possibility that defendant could establish the cause required to raise a defaulted claim. So in spite of the negative ruling, he got a second bite at the apple, but he was not successful. Um, and then he appealed that decision to the uh, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which was... Um, that was on May 18, 1992. So he was getting ready to be executed. Uh, they denied his stay of execution and directed the clerk to issue their mandate immediately. Um, basically, they uh, found that he hadn't established cause and hadn't established a culpable claim of factual innocence and affirmed the district court. Uh, on May 20th, 1992, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, applicant, he was back before the U.S. Supreme Court, applicant who had been convicted of murder brought an application for stay of execution of a death sentence. Applicant was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. After 11 rounds of judicial review in 11 years, applicant again sought a stay of execution of his death sentence. The district court found that applicant did not even make a colorable showing of actual innocence. The court denied the application for a stay of execution holding that it was hardly well positioned to second guess the district court's factual conclusion and that it certainly had no basis for concluding that applicant had produced substantial evidence that he might be innocent. The court held that the district court had reviewed applicant's claim of innocence and rejected it on the merits. The court denied the application. Um, on May 20th, 1992, Coleman was offered and given a polygraph test uh, by Governor Wilder. Uh, the terms were, if Coleman passed, Wilder promised to reconsider his denial of commutation of Coleman's sentence, but Coleman failed the polygraph. Is that um, a unique? That seems very interesting. I don't think I've ever well, heard of that before. Coleman is one of the first really big cases of innocence fraud mm. in the country. So the governor was maybe calling us bluff a little bit like, okay, correct. Show correct. me, prove to me that you're innocent and I'll commute it, but um, I'm not just going to commute because, it because somebody said so. Exactly. And, and I say it was innocence fraud because they claim DNA testing would exonerate him. And when they did the DNA testing, it inculpated him <laughs> in 1990. But yet they continued claiming he was innocent and they continued claiming that new testing, further testing, additional testing. Uh, they presented um, alternate suspects. They presented affidavits and alibi witnesses and all these things that could have been done at trial. Um, so it was the first, like I said, the first case of innocence fraud, because in 1990, they had DNA that inculpated him. That should have ended the inquiry. That should have ended the arguments. But Coleman was a main factor in that because he became a darling of the media. He appeared on the cover of Time magazine. He was held out as an innocent person about to be executed mm. in this time period. So he was executed on May 20th, 1992. His statement was, 
An innocent man is going to be murdered tonight. When my innocence is proven, I hope Americans will realize the injustice of the death penalty as all other civilized countries have. So um, the case went on. It did not die. Um, he had an attorney and a gentleman by the name of Jim McCluskey with a prison outreach group who continued advocating for post execution DNA testing because they wanted to prove him innocent and they wanted to end the death penalty. They filed a case, a request in the courts in Virginia seeking access to the DNA evidence to test it and believing it would prove Coleman's innocent. Um, that case was Globe Newspaper Company versus Commonwealth. Uh, it was decided by the Virginia Supreme Court, Virginia 264, 622 on November 1st, 2002. So this is 10 years later. Um, reminds me of Eccles. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing with the, the DNA kind of fake claims. Yeah. Uh, appellant newspapers sought review in order of an order of the Circuit Court of Buchanan County, Virginia, that denied their request to retest evidence produced in a criminal case that culminated with the execution of the defendant under Virginia Freedom of Information Act. Uh, and I'm not going to cite the uh, the actual act, the public's right to know and the media's right of access pursuant to the First Amendment and Virginia Constitutional Article one, Section 12. The newspapers requested access to DNA evidence for the purpose of scientific retesting the evidence under modern methods that could establish the guilt of the defendant with certainty. The appellate court framed the issue as whether to expand the definition of access to the courts to include the right to conduct independent testing of evidence in criminal proceedings. The appellate court refused to expand the right of access. The right to test evidence in a criminal case has not been historically extended to the press and general public and expanding the reach of the right of access to include the right could not be restricted in any principled way to only cases in which a death sentence had already been imposed. Permitting testing of this type would not play a significant positive role in the functioning of the judicial process. The newspapers did not have a right under the first amendment or Virginia code Article 1, Section 12, to obtain the biological material and subject it to retesting. Further, the request for testing of the biological material did not involve a public record under FOIA. The judgment was affirmed. The campaign continued. And in uh, on January 5th, 2006, Outgoing Governor Mark Warner issued an executive order uh, granting post-DNA, post-execution DNA testing in Roger Coleman's case. That testing was done by the Ontario Ministry of Community Safety and Correctional Services, which issued, issued its DNA report on January 11, 2006. Spoiler alert, it did not exculpate Roger Coleman. Um, the report concluded. Was, was it just a sorry, not to interrupt? Was it just a political ploy to do it? I mean, po I mean, doing something post-execution seems kind of silly. 
it is basically and i think they're they've done it this is an a, this is an attempt to undermine the death penalty if they can get God, testing just, done yeah. that exonerates a person who has been executed that is their goal they thought they were going to do it with roger coleman it didn't work did I miss it? Was it a different governor than the one that asked for the polygraph apologize? Yes. Probably. Uh, oh, okay, yes. gotcha. The, so I missed the that. The outgoing yeah. governor, but actually it might have been, yes, the outgoing governor was Governor Wilder. I mean, the governor at the time of the execution was Governor Wilder. The outgoing governor was Mark Warner, uh, Elizabeth Taylor's stepson, because Elizabeth Taylor was married to his father, John Warner, who had also been governor of Virginia. I know I'm an odd font of information. Sometimes I was going to say anybody that can remember all of Elizabeth Taylor's husband deserves a gold star. <laughs> uh -huh. All right. So uh, the conclusion, Roger Coleman cannot be excluded as the source of the major DNA profile from the DNA extract from the Wanda McCoy vaginal swab stick sperm fraction. Uh, and this was based on, on uh, the probability that a randomly selected individual unrelated to Roger Coleman would be coincident would coincidentally share the observed DNA profile is estimated to be one in 19 million. Now that is based on the Ontario population of Asians, blacks, Caucasians, East Indians, and Northern Ontario natives. Um, comparison of the DNA profile obtained from the DNA extract from Wanda McCoy's vaginal swab stick epithelial cell fraction to the DNA profile obtained from the extracts from blood stains on her sweater, areas A and B, uh, indicates a common source of Wanda McCoy. Additional DNA not attributable to either Roger Coleman or Wanda McCoy was detect detected on the DNA extracts from the Wanda McCoy, McCoy vaginal swab stick epithelial cell fraction and vaginal swab stick sperm cell fraction. Um, but one of the articles that I read, although it didn't have, they didn't have a reference sample in this report from her husband, but, uh, Mr. Blake did have a reference sample from her husband and he could not exclude her husband as a potential donor of a minor DNA profile developed from the sperm cell epithelial cell fraction so it's possible that the minor profile was her husband brad mccoy um and one of the sickest things about this is that wanda was roger coleman's sister-in-law roger coleman was married to her sister Um, so then Governor Warner, our outgoing Governor Order Warner issued a press release on January 12, 2006, uh, stating that the DNA testing found that the odds were 1 in 19 million, that someone other than Coleman could have left the DNA in a vaginal swab taken from the victim. Um, so that is, I mean, I, I think that should have been the be-all end-all, but Coleman is still included on executed but innocent lists. Because the argument is, well, maybe he and Wanda were having an affair, even though he never claimed one. And so the um, the DNA was there because they were having an affair. 
Um, sound familiar? Yeah, story as old as time, right? Yeah. So, um, but uh, that is Roger Coleman. We will definitely yep. look at his case <laughs> um, because when I when I looked at his case prior show, we had guests from Murder in the Mountains podcast, which is an excellent podcast by two ladies local to Grundy, Virginia, uh, looking at crimes in that area. And they had looked at the Coleman case and they, you know, graciously came on my podcast and provided us with some really great insight into that area of the country. Well, this, he's got all the uh, in, the key innocent frauds excuses all rolled up into one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Our next case comes uh, is Sawyer versus Whitley, 505 U.S. 333. Uh, also decided in 1992. The crime, uh, underlying crime is a first degree murder that occurred on September 29th, 1979, it occurred in my neck of the woods, Gretna, Louisiana. So it was tried in the 24th Judicial District Court of Jefferson Parish, Louisiana. The victim was Frances R. Wood, who was born in 1956, making her 22 to 23 at the time of her murder. The defendant was Robert Wayne Sawyer. He had an accomplice named Charles Lane. Uh, he also had done time uh, or pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter of a four-year-old child after being charged in Arkansas with second-degree murder. He was arrested on uh, September 30th, 1979 uh, with Mr. Lane. Um, this is a horrific crime. We will look at it also. Uh, because of the horrific nature of the crime and um, basically he and Mr. W Mr. Lane just the, the, the depth of depravity that they subjected this lady to this young woman to uh, is disgusting. Um they were initially arrested. It was a rape and assault and arson. Uh, it became a murder charge on November 21st, 1979, when Francis died of blunt head trauma and extensive burns. Uh, he Sawyer was uh, tried and convicted horrible. and sentenced to death. Yeah. I, I, mean, uh, I don't think about it. Um, on July 6th, 1983, the U.S. Supreme Court granted uh Sawyer's writ to the US Supreme Court. Um the lower court in this case was the Louisiana Supreme Court, um, which I somehow missed on this one. Uh they granted his lead leave to proceed in um in foreign pauperis and granted certiorari vacating his judgment and remanding his case for further consideration in light of Zant versus Stevens. Another case that I missed. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, sorry, folks. Uh, on remand, the Louisiana Supreme Court um, basically, uh, the court on remand from the United States Supreme Court was to consider the legality of defendant's sentencing. Defendant had been convicted in the trial court 
of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. At the sentencing phase, the state called a deputy prosecutor from another state that introduced documentary evidence that defendant had pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter of a four-year-old child. On appeal, the court ruled that evidence of the prior conviction was admissible at sentencing to show defendant's character, even though defendant had not put his character in issue first. The court rejected the argument that the second sentence of the Louisiana Code of Criminal Procedure annotated Article 905.2, which stated that the hearing was to be conducted according to the rules of evidence, meant that because defendant had not placed his character at issue by taking the stand, evidence of the guilty plea could not be introduced. To the court, the first sentence of Article 905.2 made it clear that the character of defendant was one of the two most relevant factors with which the sentencing hearing was concerned. Prior to remand, the court had determined that one of the aggravating, one of three aggravating circumstances found by the jury was not supported by the evidence. Ergo, an issue was whether or not the invalidation of this aggravating circumstance abrogated the death sentence. The court ruled that it did not, apparently, because once a simple aggravating circumstance was found, the jury was allowed to consider all the evidence, both aggravating and mitigating, to make the final death determination. The court affirmed the sentence of death that the trial court imposed on defendant. And uh, the rehearing was denied on January 6, 1984. Um, certiorari was denied on April 2, 1984. Sawyer then went to federal court and uh, so he was appealing a decision of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, petitioner inmates sought review of a judgment from the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which denied his second petition for ha federal habeas corpus relief on the ground that petitioner failed to show that he was actually innocent of the death penalty because evidence, even if unconstitutionally kept from the jury, failed to show that petitioner was not eligible for the death penalty. Petitioner inmate had been convicted of first-degree murder and the jury found aggravating factors and no statutory mitigating factors and sentenced petitioner to death. Petitioner inmate had filed a second habeas corpus petition containing successive claims. The appeals court refused to examine the merits of petitioner's claims, holding that petitioner had not shown that he was actually innocent of the crime of which he was convicted or the penalty which was imposed. Petitioner contended that the showing necessary should extend beyond the elements of the capital offense to the existence of additional mitigating evidence. The court affirmed the judgment of the Court of Appeals, holding that to show actual innocence, one had to show by clear and convincing evidence that but for constitutional error, no reasonable juror would have found petitioner eligible for the death penalty under applicable state law. The court affirmed the judgment of the appeals court, denying petitioner's application for federal habeas relief, holding that petitioner inmate had failed to show by clear and convincing evidence that, but for the constitutional error at this sentencing hearing, no reasonable juror would have found him eligible for the death penalty. So that was affirmed. And then um, quite extensive holdings again, which I'm not going to go into at this point um, because I think it's better served looking at the case in depth later on. But they basically found that he hadn't shown he was actually innocent 
and therefore was not entitled to the federal habeas relief. And this set forth the parameters for a showing of actual innocence. Um, essentially, he wanted to claim that he did not set victim set fire to the victim, and therefore he didn't deserve the death penalty. But even without his actual setting fire to the victim. The murder was especially cruel, atrocious, and heinous, quite apart from the arson. And even crediting a hearsay statement, it cannot be said that no reasonable juror would have found that he was guilty of the arson for his participation under Louisiana law. So that's the primary holding. Um, and the majority opinion was issued by Justice Rehnquist, Chief Justice Rehnquist, joined by White, Scalia, Kennedy, Souter, and Thomas. Uh, just Justice Blackman issued a concurrence. Justice Stevens, joined by Justice Blackman and O'Connor, also issued a concurrence. And these dealt with the concepts of actual innocence, uh, which we also will talk about in our next case a little bit more, uh, which were also a factor in Coleman. Um, and um, there was, I don't believe a dissent so um the a hearing was denied on september 4th 1992 um sawyer sought a stay of execution which i believe was denied on may uh a march 4th 1993 and he was executed on march 5th 1993 at the louisiana state penitentiary also known as Angola, West Feliciana Parish, Louisiana. Um, the next case is Herrera versus Collins. Uh, this is the third actual innocence case uh, brought before the U.S. Supreme Court where a death sentence was challenged on grounds that the petitioner was actually innocent. Uh, the underlying crime was capital murder, uh, there were two counts of capital murder, but the conviction dealt with one count. Uh, these capital murders were committed on September 21st, 1981. They occurred in Cameron County, Texas, and uh, also involved habeas claims in the Southern District of Texas. Victim number one was Texas DPS officer David Rucker. Victim number two was Los Fresnos police officer Enrique Carasales. Uh, the defendant was Leonel Torres Herrera. Uh, there was a witness who was a non-law enforcement officer riding along with Carasales named Enrique Hernandez. Um, uh, Herrera was arrested in Edinburgh, Texas on October 4th, 1981. He was tried and convicted on January 20th, 1982 of the murder of uh, Officer Carasales, he was sentenced to death. In July 1982, he entered a guilty plea to uh, DPS Officer Rucker's murder. In 1984, he proposed his brother, Raul Hernandez, uh, Raul Herrera Sr., Raul Herrera Sr., as the alternate suspect. And on 
this was after September 8th, 1984, when Raul Herrera, Raul Herrera, who was out on bail awaiting a murder charge of his own, was murdered. Um, Mr. Herrera's attorneys produced multiple affidavits from multiple people on December 10th, 1990 from a cellmate of Raul's claiming he confessed. That gentleman's name was Juan Franco Palacios. Uh, on December 11th, 1990, Raul's former attorney, Hector Villarreal, who I think we have encountered in another Cameron County case, um, but I don't remember, um, he claims that Ra Raul confessed to him. Um, interestingly enough, uh, he's one of the first attorneys that hasn't been forced to violate attorney-client privilege even after the death of his client. Um, then on January 9th, 1991, a friend of Raul's son, Raul Jr., Jose Ybarra Jr., gave an affidavit claiming either Raul Sr. confessed to Jose or Raul Jr. told Ra Jose Raul Sr. confessed. On January 29th, 1992, Raul uh, Herrera Jr., Raul Sr.'s son, uh, gave an affidavit claiming that his father had confessed that he was present in the car, that they'd taken his uncle's car, uh, that his father was the real killer, that he'd witnessed the, the murders. Um, and that's and my mistake. That's what either Raul Sr. confessed or Raul Jr. told Jose that he was present when his father killed the officers. Uh, interestingly enough, in spite of Herrera's guilty plea to Rucker's murder, um, they were claiming that uh, Lionel was not guilty for either murder. Um, and uh, on February 17, 1992, Raul Jr. gave a second affidavit which was presented in two versions, both typed and handwritten. Uh, again, claiming that he and his father went in uh, Lionel's car, which was registered to his girlfriend, that they are the ones who were encountered Officer Rucker. Uh, they claimed Officer Rucker was involved in some kind of drug business with the Herreras. Uh, it's, it's kind of disgusting because... Uh, this was also Lionel's claim that, you know, he was defending himself from Officer Rucker, who was involved in drug business with him and trying to kill him at the time of the murder, based on a letter that was on his person when he was arrested. Um, Herrera filed a successive writ of habeas corpus claiming actual innocence and Brady violations because Raul Jr. claimed to have told an officer that his father was the real killer and the officer told him to shut up and never mentioned it. The decision being reviewed was at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal. Um, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit affirmed the denial of petitioner inmates request for a writ of habeas corpus and uh, the court granted certiorari to review the denial. Over 10 years after the inmate was convicted of capital murder, he filed a habeas corpus petition arguing that he was actually innocent of the crime. 
The inmate supported his claim with affidavits collected years after the trial, indicating that his brother committed the murder. The inmate argued that his showing of innocence entitled him to federal habeas relief. The court held that the inmate's claim of actual innocence based on newly discovered ev evidence was not a ground for federal habeas corpus relief absent an independent constitutional violation. The state met its burden of proving at trial that the inmate was guilty of the capital murder beyond a reasonable doubt. Thus, the inmate did not come before the courts as one who was innocent, but as one who had been convicted by due process of law. Texas's refusal to entertain the inmate's newly discovered evidence eight years after his conviction did not transgress any principle of fundamental fairness. The judgment denying the inmate's petition for federal habeas corpus was affirmed. Um, and this is this was affirmed. The decision was rendered on January 25th, 1993. Herrera's claim of actual innocence does not entitle him to federal habeas corpus relief. And again, these are very detailed. Um, it's very detailed subholdings, but basically, yeah. uh, probably federal, not. Yeah, federal habeas courts do not sit to correct errors of fact, but to ensure that individuals are not imprisoned in violation of the Constitution. Right. Thus, claims of actual innocence based on newly discovered evidence have never been held to state a ground for federal habeas relief absent an independent constitutional violation occurring in the course of the underlying state criminal proceedings. The rule that a petitioner subject to subject to defenses of abuse or successive use of the habeas writ may have his federal constitutional claim considered on the merits if he makes a proper showing of actual innocence is inapplicable to this case. That's under Sawyer. Yeah, and I, I don't think a lot of people understand that. I mean, I know we were talking to the side conversation about doing an mm -hmm. episode on the types of evidence, which I think a lot of people don't understand either. But it feels like when you read people's comments online or just even in the, I mean, I think 99% of the quote unquote, you know, judicial talking heads on, you know, CNN don't understand it as, you know, the appellate courts aren't there to retry cases you know they're not there to just oh i you know retry everything it's you know they're to make sure that you know the constitution is followed and you know proper protocol is followed mm -hmm. they're not just a secondary you know original court right i don't think a right. lot of people understand that and yeah and and people don't understand that once you're convicted and your conviction is upheld on uh, direct appeal your presumption of innocence it 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 extinguishes your right you're now present yeah now you're presumed guilty you have so to you're not entitled innocence. to presumption of innocence so right your your state post-conviction court does not have to presume you innocent and you know that was one of the things that at the rodney reed hearings they were objecting to um the extraneous offense evidence as though this was his criminal underlying criminal trial for the murder of Stacy Stites. Right. And it's like, no, it's a post conviction and the court can consider any evidence. Um, and, and this also one of their holdings um, is, is very important to allow a federal court to grant Herrera typical habeas release. 
a conditional order releasing him unless the state elects to retry him or vacating his death sentence would in effect require a new trial 10 years after the first trial, not because of any constitutional violation at first trial, not because of any, uh, but simply because of a belief that in light of his newfound evidence, a jury might find him not guilty at a second trial. It is far from clear that this would produce a more reliable determination of guilt or innocence since the passage of time only diminishes the reliability of criminal adjudications. And um, I mean, I think that's a, 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 I think that's something that people aren't aware of. And that's yeah. why it wasn't done in Herrera's case. Well, I think that's a little bit of, I mean, I think it's a mix. I think there is some people that are so passionate about a case that they argue regardless of the evidence, like they just don't care. It's kind of like, you know, the political tribal thing. Like, I don't care. I believe that person in the T-shirt. But I do yeah. think there are some folks that are genuinely ignorant and they really do think the appeals court and the Supreme Court, oh, they just retry it. And so you should get to totally, you know, mm -hmm. re-educate and retry, you know, the original case. And if you can't do that, well, that's somehow not fair. I just think it's a general, you know, ignorance. You know, a lot of our talking heads don't do a really good job of, you know, educating and, and yeah. having commentators that can really discuss intelligently and with nuance the, you know, the complexities of the legal system. Yeah. And I think that's even more. It's even more prevalent now because what the media does in these cases is they take the defense side, they present the defense side, they declare the person innocent, actually innocent, and then they denigrate and crit criticize the courts for not granting relief. Right, exactly. So um, now one of the other holdings I want to, I want to, I do want to, to, go into um as to herrera's case specifically even assuming for the sake of argument that in a capital case a truly persuasive post-trial demonstration of actual innocence would render a defendant's execution unconstitutional and warrant federal habeas relief if there were no state avenue open to process process such a claim herrera's showing of innocence falls far short of the threshold showing which would have made have to be made in order to trigger relief. That threshold would necessarily be extraordinarily high because of the very disruptive disruptive effect that entertaining such claims would have on the need for finality in capital cases and the enormous burden that having to retry cases based on often stale evidence would place on the states. Although not without probative value, Herrera's affidavits are insufficient to meet such a standard since they were obtained without the benefit of cross-examination and an opportunity to make credibility determinations consist with one exception of hearsay are likely to have been presented as a means of delaying Herrera's sentence, were produced not at trial but over eight years later and only after the death of the alleged perpetrator without a satisfactory explanation for the delay or for why Herrera pleaded guilty to the Rucker murder. They contain inconsistencies and therefore fail to provide a convincing account of what took place on the night of the murders 
and do not overcome the strong proof of Herrera's guilt that was presented at trial. And that was the vehicle, uh, blood stains on the vehicle, blood stains on Herrera's clothing, the letter in Herrera's pocket that basically admitted to the murders. Um, and the identification of Herrera, not only by Hernandez, the witness who was riding along with Carasalis, but also Carasalis identified her, Leonel Herrera in a lineup prior to his death. So, um, and, and I think, uh, I think Herrera's social security card was found at the Rucker scene. So yeah. there's a well, lot I mean, it's of over, Yeah. Well, and it's, again, it's like the never ending battle. I mean, if you're the prosecutor and you have to prove with uh, beyond a reasonable doubt that somebody's guilty, trying to retie, retry them, you know, 10 years later, um, you know, it's just harder and harder, right? You know, witness memory fade, evidence fades, people pass away. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the, yeah. you know, it's kind of like a Kafka trap. And um, so the, the, the majority opinion was authored by Chief Justice Rehnquist, and he was joined by uh, Justices O'Connor, Scalia, Kennedy, and Thomas. Uh, Justice O'Connor authored a concurrence, which was joined by Kennedy. Justice Scalia also authored a concurrence, joined by Justice Thomas. Justice White concurred in the judgment. Uh, Justice Blackman, joined by Justices Stevens and Souter, uh, filed a dissent expressing the view that the execution of a person who has been validly convicted and sentenced, sentenced but who can prove his innocence with newly discovered evidence was present, forbidden by the 8th and 14th Amendments uh, to obtain relief on a claim of actual innocence. A federal habeas corpus petitioner must show that he probably is innocent and that the Court of Appeals decision should be reversed and the case should be remanded to the district court to consider whether the accused is shown in light of all the evidence that he's probably actual, actually innocent. The case did not end there. Rehearing was denied on March 22nd, 1993. Uh, Herrera came back before the um, fifth circuit on, and they authored an opinion. They issued an opinion on May 11th, 1993. Um, he basically had filed a second federal habeas petition. He raised same issues previously rejected. And so his request was denied. Um, he then went to the clemency proceeding in state court. He provided additional affidavits um, from a cousin, Jesse Gomez, a friend, Aiden Alanis, um, his witnesses were subjected to po to polygraph uh, testing. He had an affidavit from his step-grandfather, Antonio Rivera. However, Antonio needed a translator. But there's a polygraph report for Jesse Gomez, Norma Herrera, who was his sister, and um, Antonio Rivera. Uh, of course, the polygraph report said they're all telling the truth. And his sister uh, gave an affidavit saying Lionel was passed out on their mother's bed and that Raul and Raul Jr. went off in Lionel's car. 
Um, Ernie Halsey gave an affidavit validating his uh, uh, validating his reports or attesting to his reports. Uh, a, an application for stay of execution was filed on uh, and denied rather on May 11th, 1993. Uh, again, he went before the Fifth Circuit for another um, stay of execution. Uh, the and initially a probable a certificate of probable cause had been granted, but that was vacated and the uh, district court's denial of habeas relief was affirmed and the Fifth Circuit denied his stay of execution. The Supreme Court also denied a stay of execution, which would have been granted by Justice Blackman and Stevens. And on May 12th, 1993, Leonel Herrera was executed in Huntsville. Uh, Walker County, Texas. And that's another innocence fraud because this was, you know, like I said, this was alleged uh, alleged confessions of a dead man, a child who said he was present and witnessed everything, who had to give two affidavits to kind of marshal all of the facts to be consistent with the evidence. Um, and, um, a bunch of other, you know, a bunch of other witnesses, none of whom could give a reasonable explanation as to why they didn't say something prior to the trial or why Leonel Herrera didn't say something prior to the trial that, you know, look, dude, dude, I was passed out on my mama's bed. I don't know what happened. My brother has keys to my car and they're supposedly involved in this drug business with their father. And we'll look at Herrera's case as well, because it is, it's a, it's a, it's a very convoluted story. And, and I would say, you know, your Occam's razor, you're going to have fun with that. Kyle. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm always a slow draw on the mute button, so I'm trying okay. not to. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, this seems like, I mean, yeah, this seems like a very simple case. I mean, of in terms of the facts that has just gotten convoluted by, mm -hmm. you know, throwing a bunch of things against yeah. the wall. I mean, I, you know, as I say, I'm, I, I, you know, beat the dead horse on a lot of these. It's doesn't mean a person's necessarily guilty, but, you know. And all the evidence points in one way, and there's no uh, there's no reasonable alternative. It's pretty clear the original verdict was probably correct. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And so, all right, our next case, and I think this is our final case. Yay! Um, I just don't want to run out of time on Zoom. That's why I've I'm paranoid about that. All right. Uh, Simmons versus South Carolina, 512 U.S. 154, decided in 1994. Uh, it uh, involves a capital murder committed on July 17, 1990 in Columbia, Richland County, South Carolina. And that for fans of live uh, PD, formerly on A&E, and I believe on patrol live, um, that is one of the one of the participating or was one of the participating agencies was the Richland County Sheriff's Office. 
The victim was Josie Lamb. The uh, perpetrator defendant was Jonathan Dale Simmons. Uh, Jonathan Dale Simmons had prior crimes involving um, prior rapes uh, of elderly women. The first on oh my internet connection. The first uh, my internet connection kind of crapped out. So on August in August of 1989, Marie F was 71 years old at the time she was assaulted by appellant in her home in South Con Congre in the South Congre area. Simmons went to Marie F's front door and threw water on her when she opened the door. He then raped her, beat her, and stole money. May 1990, Ferris M was an elderly woman who lived in the Olympia area of Columbia. At the time she was assaulted, Simmons approached the front door of Ferris M's house and asked for directions. He then went to her back door and forced his way in. He sexually assaulted her while choking her with some clothing around her neck. He stole $50 from the house. He admitted he chose the victim because he saw she was an old lady. June 1990, Estelle S., who was Simmons's grandmother, was 71 years old and lived near Marie F. when Simmons raped and beat her in her home. He unplugged her telephone and looked for money. Simmons was arrested on July 18, 1990. He was convicted and sentenced to death. The case was, uh, the review was to the Supreme Court of South Carolina. Petitioner prisoner challenged the decision of the Supreme Court of South Carolina, which affirmed the decision of the trial court that convicted him of beating an elderly woman and sentenced him to death. Petitioner prisoner beat to death an elderly woman because of petitioner's criminal past. Petitioner was ineligible for parole if convicted of any subsequent violent crime offense. After the prisoner was convicted of beating the elderly woman, there was a jury trial for sentencing. Under the court's order, defense counsel was forbidden from mentioning the subject of parole and expressly was prohibited from questioning prospective jurors as to whether they understood the meaning of a life sentence under South Carolina law. The prisoner was subsequently sentenced to the death penalty. On a writ of certiorari, the court found that a Pali state succeeded in securing a death sentence on the ground, at least in part, of petitioner's future dangerousness, while at the same time concealing from the sentencing jury that the petitioner was not eligible for parole. The court concluded that the state denied petitioner due process. The Sup South Carolina Supreme Court's decision was reversed and the case was remanded for further proceedings. The state Supreme Court's decision that affirmed the trial court's decision that sentenced petitioner prisoner to death was reversed and remanded. Petitioner's due process rights were violated because Appellee State argued that petitioner posed a future threat to society when in reality, if he were sentenced to life in prison in imprisonment, petitioner would not be eligible for parole. So this was decided on June 17, 1994, and it was reversed and remanded. The holding where a defendant's future of dangerousness is at issue and state law prohibits his release on parole, due process requires that the sentencing jury be informed that the defendant is parole ineligible. An individual cannot be executed on the basis of information which he had no opportunity to not deny or explain. Petitioner's jury reasonably may have believed that he could be released on parole if he were not executed. To the extent that this misunderstanding pervaded its deliberations, it had the effect of creating a false choice 
between sentencing him to death and sentencing him to a limited period of incarceration. The trial court's refusal to apprise the jury of information so crucial to its determination, particularly when the state alluded to the defendants for future dangerousness and its argument cannot be reconciled with this court's well-established precedents interpreting the due process clause. And that's under Skipper versus South Carolina, another case I missed. The trial court's instruction that life imprisonment was to be understood in its plain and ordinary meaning did not satisfy petitioner's request for parole ineligibility charge since it did nothing to dispel the misunderstanding reasonable jurors may have about the way in which any particular state defines life imprisonment. Uh, the majority opinion was authored by Justice Blackman, joined by Justices Stevens, Souter, and Ginsburg. Justice Souter authored a concurrence, joined by Justice Stevens. Justice Ginsburg author, also, also uh, uh, authored a concurrence. Justice O'Connor also also <laughs> authored a concurrence joined by Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justice Kennedy. Uh, and they all basically agreed that due process was denied when the subject of parole and eligibility was kept from the jury. Uh, Justice Scalia authored a dissent joined by Justice Thomas. And they basically um, expressed the view that the 14th Amendment's due process clause should not, whenever the state argues future dangerousness, override state law limiting the admissibility of information concerning parole. And where, as in the case at hand, the prosecution did not suggest specifically suggest parolability, there was no reason why the Constitution ought to compel the admission of evidence showing that under the state's current law, the defendant would not be parolable. Oh, and I thought Simmons and, and Simmons was not our last case. Sorry. <laughs> our last case is Heck versus Humphrey. Um, I kind of don't agree with this one either. Because even dealing with a life sentence, parole in it, ineligibility is not always the be all end all. Because you can you can apply for commutation, you can apply for clemency, you can apply for other executive branch release that could reduce a life sentence. So um, yeah, I don't. I was thinking about it. This is a little bit of a tough one. I don't know. I may. I don't know. I could see the point though that if if the if the prosecution is using the Future dangerous. Future danger, but the probability of future danger is, I mean, maybe let's just say 1%. If, I don't know, I guess it'd be a question of how much, I guess in a perfect world, right, you'd like to know how much did that have an impact on the jury's yeah choice of the death penalty versus you know if if that had not been the case would they have given him life in prison yeah uh, yeah i and again i i just think um you know it's kind of like the the i find it almost 
similar to being letting a defense attorney tell a jury if y'all aren't unanimous he gets a life sentence which they're not allowed to do either and i find that kind of i don't find that necessarily i don't know i mean i certainly wouldn't i i, I wouldn't necessarily even think oh well he'll serve a life sentence he'll be ineligible for all under the facts of the crime, that might not even be enough to exempt him from the death penalty. Yeah, that seems right. And especially when you have a person targeting older women because of their vulnerability. Right. And, um, and so even if he's, if he's in prison, he's still a danger. I think that's a concept that South Carolina doesn't really have yet. All right. So our final case for real this time is Heck versus Humphrey. And, um, it is is a voluntary manslaughter case. <clears throat> uh, the crime was committed on or about January 7th, 1986. It occurred in Dearborn Circuit Court in Indiana, or it occurred in Indiana, and um, the court was Dearborn Circuit Court. Also, uh, the U.S. District Court, Southern District of Indiana, New Albany Division. The victim was Ricky Heck, <clears throat> the defendant was Roy Heck Sr. Um, he was arrested in Dearborn County. He was convicted and sentenced to 15 years. Um, he filed a writ of habeas corpus. And that was affirmed on September 18, 1992 by the 7th Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, basically affirming the district court. He was challenging um, his conviction and sentence. And he contended that the evidence against him was insufficient. The evidence showed when the inmate's wife died, she had a broken jaw, which could have been due to caused by severe blow to her head. The court found that circumstantial evidence was sufficient to establish that the wife met a violent death as to whether the inmate had intentionally killed his wife as required by the Indiana Code Annotated 35-42-1-3. The evidence showed that the inmate had a history of beating his wife that time she disappeared. He said she was on a trip. And that he fled the state when the police got a warrant to search his farm. The court found a rational trier of fact could conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that the inmate intended to kill his wife. Uh, her her body, by the way, was found on said farm. Um, they, uh, as the admission of voice identification testimony at trial, any error in admitting the testimony was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt because the evidence of his guilt was established without it. Finally, hearsay evidence of the physical abuse of his wife was admissible to prove his state of mind and his motive for killing her. 
the court affirmed the judgment of the district court on um, an order was issued on February 22nd, 1993, probably granting form of papyrus and um, uh, he filed a writ, uh, a 1983 action. Um, this is one we're going to have to look at because this one's interesting too. Um, <laughs> and in the year MA four now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, we have more than that. Um, petitioner. Yeah. Well, four. Um, four seasons. Petitioner inmate brought an action under 42 USC section 1983 against respondents, prosecutors, and an investigator. He sought review of a decision from the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, Seventh Circuit, holding that regardless of the relief sought, his suit was properly deemed a habeas application which required exhaustion of state remedies because he was challenging the legality of his conviction. Petitioner sought monetary damages in his Section 1983 action. He contended that they had engaged in an unlawful, unreasonable, and arbitrary investigation that led to his arrest, knowingly destroyed exculpatory evidence, and caused an illegal and unlawful voice identification procedure to be used at his trial. The Supreme Court held that in order to recover damages for allegedly unconstitutional conviction or imprisonment or for other harm caused by actions whose unlawfulness would render a conviction and sentence invalid, a plaintiff in a 1983 action was required to prove that the conviction or sentence had been reversed on direct appeal, expunged by executive order, declared invalid by a state tribunal authorized to make such a determination, are called into question by a federal court's issuance of a writ of habeas corpus under 28 U.S.C. section 2254. The inmate's claim was not cognizable under 1983. The court noted that both lower federal courts found inmates' damages claim challenged the legality of his conviction. Therefore, the action was correctly dismissed. The court affirmed the appeals court's judgment. That decision was rendered on June 24, 1994, and the court held that in order to recover damages for allegedly unconstitutional conviction or imprisonment or for other harm caused by actions whose unlawfulness would render a conviction or sentence invalid, a Section 1983 plaintiff must prove that the conviction or sentence has been reversed on direct appeal, etc. A claim for damages bearing that relationship to a conviction or sentence that has not been so invalidated is not cognizable under 1983. Um, and that's, yeah, that's pretty much the meat of the holdings. Uh, the majority opinion was issued by Justice Scalia, joined by Chief Justice Rehnquist, Justices Kennedy, Thomas, and Ginsburg. Justice Thomas authored a concurrence expressing the view that the court's opinion limited the scope of 1983 in a manner consistent with federalism concerns undergirding the explicit exhaustion requirement of the habeas corpus statute and with the state of the common law at the time section 1983 was enacted. Justice Souter joined Justices Blackman, Stevens, and O'Connor in a concurrence expressing the view that the proper way to resolve the case was to construe 1983 in light of the habeas corpus statute and ex its explicit policy of exhaustion. 
And that is it for part two, because we got to 75 pages and that was enough. <laughs> and did we end on the rare, um, like, unanimous Supreme Court verdict? That's what I was trying to. Um, yes, it was. It, is, it was, in essence, unanimous um, because there was no dissent. And and the concurrences agreed with how the majority right. handled. They just they just wanted to get their own word in. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, no, awesome job. Thanks for your work. Thank you. So that is part two. Um, we will continue part three. Um, and we will conclude with part three because I promise that I will I will call any case that um if it gets too much <laughs> <laughs> um and there are, you know like i said there are a couple that i missed that have been cited um that i may at some point if we need a break from from deep dives we can do another look at these cases that i missed um, but I, I'll have to look and see what each of them says, because what, what we covered may actually be more of the same. Right. In other words, you know, they, they just, the, the cases we covered expanded on concepts employed in those cases. Um, so that's it. And are you available on the 1st of October? Yep, absolutely. Cool. Cool. Well, I wanted to clear that now. Yeah, no, sounds good. Yep, we'll look forward to talking in a couple of weeks. <laughs> so um, that gives me time to do my notes next weekend. And then the weekend after that, we'll record. And then we can move along. <laughs> so. All right. Well, sounds good. Thanks for all your work. Have a great rest of your weekend and a great week. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> thank you for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien and Kyle Evans. If you like the show and want to know more, you can, can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Find us on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Kyle and I will return in two weeks for episode 12 notable supreme court cases part three we'll wrap our, up our look at u.s supreme court cases with cases decided since 1995 including schlup atkins roper and martinez slash trevino we'll continue looking at the background of these cases the issues raised by the petitioners and the decisions of the u.s supreme court until then have a great two weeks and stay safe Thank you.